Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I am excited to be bringing you a chat with Lindsay Shepard, who just became the first person to yo-yo the gravel doom route. And for bonus points, she did it single speed. I first learned about Lindsay through social media. She went to a frame building school, built her own bike, and I thought that was cool. So I gave her a follow. And shortly after that, she signed up for the East Texas Showdown and raced in it with the bike that she built. So that was cool. Then after that, she signs up for Gravel Doom on the same bike and does the yo-yo, as I mentioned, which in my book warrants a interview. And I have to say that going into this interview, I was super excited to talk to Lindsay, uh, really interested in her story, how she built the bike, how the bike performed, and then taking it on these two bikepacking trips and races and how did that go? I mean, to me, I'm like, this is really an epic story. But I quickly learned that that was truly just the tip of the iceberg whenever it came to Lindsay Shepard's story. And I was and am absolutely blown away by her. Her lifestyle is awesome. The way she's prioritizing the things in her life, uh, making sacrifices or maybe not sacrifices, but choices in other areas to accomplish the lifestyle that she wants to have. What kind of freedom that lifestyle allows her and the cool stuff she gets to do and has done. And we kind of talk about all of those things, at least a little bit here and there, and we have a great time doing it. Uh, we met up at Caprock Canyon State Park, which was a perfect setting for a podcast, in my opinion. It's actually the second one I've ever recorded there. Uh, the first one was with the Adventure Media course uh, that Jared Foster teaches uh, but it's just a beautiful, picturesque park, and we're surrounded by these red canyon walls, and uh, it was quite lovely, and uh, I absolutely enjoyed my conversation with Lindsay, and I think you're going to like this one, too. Uh, but before we get to today's episode, let's take a moment to thank the people that made this episode possible but first, before we thank them, I think this might be a good opportunity for me to slide in a uh, personal note. At the beginning of this year in January, I quietly transitioned out of real estate and have officially put real estate on hold. Uh, in fact, my license is suspended. Well, not suspended, but it's uh, not active. And I can't practice real estate right now. So don't call me if you want a house. And I am putting all of my eggs in the Bikes for Death basket, essentially jumping off a cliff. There may or may not be a parachute. We don't know. We don't know if there's going to be this golden money parachute that's going to inflate and uh, take me on a ride or if I'll just crash and burn. But I'm going to give it a shot, which is exciting, uh, which means hopefully more episodes, more events, all kinds of good stuff. We're already seeing the... Uh, results of that. In fact, if you're paying attention, you'll know what's going on. But yeah, I guess that's a big announcement and uh, probably worth sharing because whenever I'm out and about and meeting people, one of the questions that I get often is about real estate and you know how things are going with bikes or death and, and how that whole process is going. 
And so just by way of update, I'm not a real estate agent anymore. The only thing I do is bikes or death. I am pouring everything into it and it feels so good. And we're just going to ride this thing out and, and see how it works, you know, but I feel good enough about it to take a chance. I mean, there's no guarantees in life. Uh, life is an adventure. I'm here for a ride. You only get one chance and I'm only going to get one chance at bikes or death and I'm ready to give it a go, uh, officially full time, which is exciting. So, uh, genuinely, thank you everyone who has ever supported the podcast, whether through kind word, deed, or monetarily buying merch, anything, you know, it, it really, um, it's been impactful in my life in almost every single way. I mean, bikes or death at this point permeates almost everything that I do. And that is for the better. Absolutely. My life is better. I'm happier, more excited and more energetic about what I'm doing. And I mean, you know, piggybacking on Lindsay Shepard's conversation today, like, I'm like most people who are just trying to carve out a little niche of life that, you know, you can do a job where you're happy and, uh, you know, it's benefiting society. You feel like you're doing something good and, you know, you're living a fun and adventurous and a happy life. You have good relationships, all these things, all these things we want. And certainly we spend a lot of our time, all of us working, most of us, unless you won the lottery or something. And yeah, finding a way to make your job and what you do for a living something that you love and you're passionate about and it satiates you and it gives back to you is huge and you know that's what i'm shooting for and uh again thank you everyone for uh supporting this show we're gonna keep ramping it up and hopefully only bigger and better things moving forward uh but on that note let us thank our newest patrons. Uh, this week, we'd like to thank Lance Putnam for signing up as a Patreon. And we'd also like to thank Kevin Lee uh, over at Spinistry for increasing his pledge. That's always an option, by the way. Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, if y'all run out of Bikes or Death episodes to listen to, I hear Kevin Lee actually has started a podcast, a bikepacking podcast uh, called Shiftless. So yeah, if you get tired of Bikes or Death, you can go check out Kevin Lee's uh, podcast probably wherever you get your pods. And if you would like to support this podcast and help keep me from going back to real estate ever, ever, ever again, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And this episode with Lindsay is actually a perfect example of why Patreons are so great and also why it's great to not have a real estate job. This podcast happened because Lindsay... Well, like I said, Lindsay yo-yo the doom. I DM'd her and I was like, hey, what's your travel schedule? I always try, whenever I'm interviewing anybody, as long as they're somewhat in, even if they're in the United States, I'm going to ask them, you know, where are you traveling? Where are you traveling in the next little bit? And I'm always looking for intersections where I might be able to meet them up in person. Well, I did that with Lindsay and our schedules weren't really aligning. Uh, she was going out to California and she was in New Mexico and I'm way down in Texas. So I was like, well, bummer, I guess we'll just do a Zoom chat. 
And then she says to me, she's like, well, maybe I can drive to you and like kind of meet you halfway. And I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Uh, so it turned out that Caprock Canyon was, it was seven hours from me and six hours from her. And it was in the complete opposite direction of where she needed to go. But uh, we both uh, wanted to do an in-person chat. And because I didn't have another job and because I have patrons that support this show, I can pick up and uh, go. And that's what we did. So at a drop of the hat, we met out there. We went on a hike and have a, had a great time. And that is how you make podcasts. So anyway, sorry for the long rant, uh, but I'm almost halfway into this year and I haven't uh, even mentioned the fact that I'm actually doing Bikes for Death full time now. So I thought it was worth actually mentioning. And now Let's thank the sponsors that have made today's episode possible, starting with Athletic Greens. By now, you know that with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptions to help you start your day right. AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, has no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting good. And at a cost of less than $3 a day, you can't afford not to give your body the nutritional support it needs. And did you know that Athletic Greens is a certified carbon neutral company? That's right, they are. And they purchase carbon credits that support old growth rainforest. So if you're ready to give AG1 a try, we've made it easy by giving you a free one-year supply of immunity support, vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death again. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, everybody, that's it. We made it. And now it's time to get to my chat with Lindsay Shepard. One quick technical note on this episode. Uh, the first 10 minutes, the audio is a little uh, not great on my side, little technical problem. Uh, Want to give a huge shout out to my editor, Ben Crannell, who does an amazing job and he actually slayed it. I gave him the worst audio file ever and you can actually understand what's going on now. So it's just the first 10 minutes. Once you get past that, smooth sailing and that's it. All right, let's get to it. But first, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think... Oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Uh, Lindsay, what do you think about uh, my office? Your office is absolutely beautiful. If I got to work with this view every day, which I kind of do being an archaeologist, 
when I am doing surveys or excavations and stuff, it's always outside in the middle of nowhere for the most part. So, uh, so tell the listening audience where we are and yeah, I don't know, maybe your thoughts. On We're at Caprock Canyon. First time here. Really neat. It's, it's like a different view of Texas than what I've seen. So I've driven through and past like the Guadalupe Mountains. So I've gotten that view. And then I've been in the more deserty, flat areas. I didn't know there was something like this, but it's like the red rocks and some nice formations and canyons and stuff. This is for anybody who reads, um, especially like the book I was saying about Empire of the Summer Moon. I think that's what it's called. Empire of the Summer Moon. It's something close to that. Again, let me know in the comments. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the comment section is going to be blowing up. That is an excellent book, though, but it, it a lot of it takes place like right where we are, um, or, or much of it does. And when people picture like old West Texas and, you know, the Westerns and stuff, like this is, that's where we are right now. The bison are here. Yep. Or at least statues of bison. We've seen two real ones. Lindsay's disappointed. So as far as we know, we've seen one bison uh, and we keep seeing the same. It's the same one from multiple angles at different distances. I will vouch for Caprock Canyon though because I've been here. Um, but this is actually my second time to record a podcast in Caprock Canyon. The first one for anyone who's interested, I told Lindsay yesterday, but is the, um, I did an adventure media class trying to remember the title of that one but we 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 had a chat like a, a group chat with the whole class uh in this uh arroyo at the base of like a, a canyon and uh it's quite beautiful yeah yeah this isn't bad either though oh not bad at all yeah so uh i first i want to talk about your van okay about your living situation um everybody already knows about that you ride bikes but yeah no one cares about <laughs> but, uh, so you live in your van yep full time full time you don't have another residency or anything no residency no storage when i visit friends and family i'll stay inside occasionally and sometimes i'll like park outside a person's house if i'm visiting for a couple of days but yeah for the most part i'm just cruising around to wherever and I park a lot at Cracker Barrels and sometimes hotel parking lots because the day of collecting license plates when you check in at a hotel is apparently over, so. Okay, so Cracker Barrel. Uh, and uh, I know you mentioned that you'd look for a Starbucks, maybe. Starbucks is where I like to work from. I love to try little coffee shops when I'm going through towns, but I don't like to sit and work at one for a couple of hours because I just feel like I'm taking up space at this nice little business. But Starbucks has a policy of you don't even have to buy anything. You can just sit there all day, basically. So I'll go in and I'll have a couple coffees and stuff and, and a treat. But I'll I'll work from a Starbucks for a solid four or five hours. How long have you been doing the van life thing? And, and It's been a couple years. I'd actually have to sit and think for a minute to know exactly how long. But let's just say two years. Okay. So yeah. relatively new. Yep. What was the thing that precipitated like what was what was your reason for i know you mentioned uh you know before when we were chatting that you sold your house and uh and now you live in a van well the house selling that was gosh that was like 15 years ago i actually i haven't owned a home for yeah well over a decade i've just been renting but i just in, in life in general 
I like to travel. I like to see things. I like to vacation, but it's hard to, to take off financially more than a couple weeks a year, you know, more than what the paid vacation is at work. So I figured with van life, I would be able to travel places, you know, sit in a city for a couple weeks and then just explore on the evenings and weekends and feel like I'm on vacation and I'm seeing different parts of the States, but I'm not actually taking off work. So yeah, it just became a way to see more in regular life. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually pretty interesting because um, one of the things that America I don't think does very well is value, um, you know, our time. Uh, you know, we're valuing the company's time and the corporation's time or whatever. And so it almost feels like you've had to adapt your lifestyle to um, conform to, yes, I have a job in America, but I also want to travel and, and see. Do you feel like that's kind of what you're doing or... Yeah, that's a really good way of phrasing it. We, I mean, my current job, they gave me an extra paid week off each year, which I felt like was just this, you know, like getting three weeks at the start versus two weeks. Like that's unheard of here in the U.S. But when I've done different events and stuff, I remember when I did the American Trail Race in 2017, there was a couple that had come over from Spain and like they had a full month that was just like their holiday. And I think they had time on top of that even you know, different parts of the year, but it's a really interesting concept. I'd like to experience that, live somewhere where stuff just shuts down for a month out of the year. Yeah, we don't do that here. That's no. why you have to buy a van, live in it, and travel around. Yeah. And, yeah. So I guess to further expand on kind of like your living situation, um, how is your work also conducive to being able to, to live in a van? Well, I've over the years have transitioned in archaeology to doing mostly GIS work, which is geographical information systems for those who are unfamiliar with it. That type of work, um, a GIS system is one where you store and manipulate or analyze spatial data. So like our Google Maps is a GIS system. It stores all the information, the spatial info on the roads, and then you can query that, say, I want to go from here to here, and it analyzes the data real quick and says, this is the best way to get there. So the systems I work with, we're basically just storing all the data from our biological and archaeological surveys and stuff. So that's all, all on the computer. I can do it from the road. I help out with report writing. In some places I help out with, I've helped out with um, proposal writing. And I do, with the, the current company I'm, I'm working at, I've told them that if we have longer surveys or excavations that take a few weeks or a couple months or something, I'm happy to go back and work those because it's still fun to get out in the field. But yeah, being remote, doing something that I can do remotely has just really helped out with being able to kind of travel and do what I want, go where I want, when I want, like being able to meet you here. That was it's because I'm remote and in the van. Yeah. By the way, thank you. Uh, a public thank you because thank you. Drove you're driving a total of 14 hours out of your way. You were in Albuquerque, mm -hmm. so you, and then when you drove seven hours east. I think it was only about six. Yeah, so you came further than me. Yep, heading to San Diego after this. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, appreciate it. you're doing a lot of extra driving. You're welcome. I'm dri doing 14 hours, but this is my job. So yeah, it's worth it. I think in person is so much nicer than Zoom without that little weird delay and stuff. Yeah, I, I way prefer to do in-person interviews um, when I can. And uh, thanks to my lovely patrons who support this work. 
I'm able to travel and meet guests like you. Thank you, patrons. If you'd like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Do it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> uh yeah but seriously thank you uh oh you're welcome it's and it's it's so much fun to like yeah be out in a place like this and chatting and we got to go for a hike we did a uh, that was awesome smile hike uh pretty pretty for texas like a pretty rugged hike yeah i was surprised at how much climbing there was on the map it said it was extremely rugged and when i look at park service maps i take it with a grain of salt because usually they'll say something is like a level 10 and i think this is a two but I'm sure they're just trying to keep people safe and prepared. But yeah, that was actually pretty rugged. Yeah, that one was actually a, a real hike. Yeah. Um, I didn't take hardly anything with me because neither of us looked at the map. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, a few miles. I don't yeah. you know, just take a few things. And I'm like you, it says extremely rugged. And you're like, okay, it's going to you know, be some rocks. Let's yeah. Uh, but no, this one was actually a real hike. <laughs> and then as the sun sets and we're still out there. <laughs> Did you bring a headlamp? Nope. <laughs> yeah, well, we timed it perfect. We did. We got we got back to camp right when the uh, sun was going down, so it was actually quite nice. Yeah. So let's. What is your What is your life like? What is your like? How do you? Are Are you pretty free to travel and go where you want as long as you don't have one of these uh, excavations you have to go to? Mm -hmm. So what is dictating where you go, when you go, why you go? What I want to see and who I want to visit, and really that's it. So I I planned for this summer, for example, I planned to do Doom and then two ITTs in Arkansas. So a lot of my um, April, May, June is kind of based around when I set those for. And other than that, it's just like, what parts of the country have I not been to a lot? What do I want to see? So I've got some friends out in California, and I've only been out there a couple of times, and it's always the same place. It's, I usually go to like San Francisco and Sacramento. So I'm going to go out and see some more places that I've just never been, really. Yeah. So what uh, you just have a, a, a thirst or a, a desire to just see everything you can? I mean, what are, what are your goals, you know? Well, I like to be active. I like to get out and I like to hike a lot and bike, of course, and paddle. So... I just want to experience all the different landscapes, the different types of ecosystems. I've lived in the desert when I was um, not mobile. I was in the desert for about 12 years between Phoenix and Albuquerque. So I got pretty acclimated to the desert scene and then just the variation in the high desert, say, of Albuquerque versus the Sonoran Desert and Phoenix as far as like heat, the different types of plants you see, the um, style of trails and stuff for riding. So I felt like I've kind of, you know, experienced the desert for a long time. So now I'm like really into like Arkansas, the more humid areas and the the hills and valleys and stuff like that. So that's been fun. I'd really like to get out to the West Coast and get back into paddling. I used to kayak a lot and I'm getting a stand up paddleboard and I think it'd be fun to kind of putz up and down the coast and find some lakes and rivers and stuff to explore. I love it. I want to, yeah. Can we swap lives? <laughs> no, pass. Just checking. You never know. The offer stands. Uh, so how are you liking it? You're two years into this new mobile lifestyle, uh, pros and cons, highs and lows. Like, how are you liking it? Gosh, I can't even think of any cons right now. Maybe I haven't been doing it long enough to, to experience any. And I've also been slowly building up the van as I go. 
So the only thing I'd missed in these first two years was I missed having a sink inside to brush my teeth. So my brother just built me some cabinets a couple months back and there's a sink. I still, I have yet to hook it up. I've got everything I need to do it, but but that was the only thing I missed as far as living situation goes. It feels really freeing to not have storage or, you know, like everything I have fits in the van. So it feels good to just have everything with me all the time. If I'm driving along and I see a sign for a park or something, I know I can pull over real quick if I have time. And if there are trails, I can ride them. Um, if there's just like a nice hike, I can do that real quick. I can go sit by the water, read a book. Um, I think we need to, uh, I think the most important thing about your van is telling people about the, uh, the bed. <laughs> so it was, I've seen a lot of van builds. Uh, anyway, yeah. you. Oh yeah. It's like, it's right up against the ceiling. I, when I went to buy this van, it was pandemic time. So everybody was like into getting vans and trailers and campers. So they were in short supply. And then of course with the chip shortage too. So I had a guy at this um, dealership I was working with. And every time a van came in, he would like, you know, contact me, let me know about it. But by the time we got in touch, it was like it was snapped off the lot. So I was keeping a real close look on their website and this van popped up and it's it's got the low roof. It's just your typical low roof, regular size bed. And I still, I called him up. I was like, how much money to, you know, hold it for me? And he's like 500 bucks. And so I was like, put it on hold. I'll come look at it today. And even though it's like the short roof and I, I'm tall, I could use something much taller. I just, I snapped it up because I was getting ready to leave town for Utah Mixed Epic. And I was going to be on the road then for like four months of stuff I had planned out. So I was like, screw it, I'll buy it. So when I started designing the garage, I wanted to have it for like optimized for bike storage. So I've got a pullout tray where I've got the bikes standing up. They just have the front wheel off. So the bed had to be just above those and that was the height you know that's what yeah. determined it and so i've got i mean i can i can lay on my side <laughs> and my hips not hitting the ceiling but it's pretty close <laughs> yeah but it's never it's never been an issue i've had it laid out like that now for gosh almost a year and i don't bang my head <laughs> i feel like i'm so coddled in there it's such a tight space that i it's like coddling a baby i like sleep straight through the night it's comfortable. So we've warm. we've been hanging out for almost 24 hours now. And I feel like one thing I've learned about you is you seem to be very adaptable. I agree. Yeah. 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 Like, I, I, I don't like, I don't know. You're just like, okay, the van's not the right. Uh, you know, you'd rather have the high roof, but they got the short roof. So you, you're just, okay, I'm going to go with it. Yeah. Then you're like, all right, I have seven inches between my bed and the ceiling, I'm just going to go with it. It's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, You know, I, that's a really nice observation. I don't know exactly when that happened, me being adaptable, but I think bikepacking actually has a lot to do with it. I started bikepacking about 10 years ago. And I remember before that, like I, I'm still kind of impatient to a degree, but I was much more impatient. Mm. I was much more things have to be the right way. I was more of a perfectionist. Yeah. And with bikepacking, you're out there and shit breaks or you miss resupply or one of a million other things that we experience on a daily basis out on our bikes and you just have to learn to deal with it. Yeah. I think that that's so interesting. I, I believe that whenever you are 
out with very few provisions. When you forget something, when you have to make do, you're learning that you can live with so much less and be happy. Like yeah. you're comfortable, you're happy, you're satiated. And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't need all of this stuff. All mm-hmm. that, you know, compared to sleeping on the side of the road in a ditch and, you know, freezing temperatures when it's raining, uh, <laughs> your little bed and your uh, van is is quite lovely, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. It really does devo- like help develop an appreciation for things. I think I have a lot more gratitude for the stuff that we tend to take granted in Western society. I remember when I was doing the American Trail Race in 2017, I was on this stretch where there was 130 miles to the next water stop, Mm -hmm. and it was through the desert. I think it was um, the first part of Oregon into Nevada, and it got to the heat of the day. I had been rationing water like, you know, you get a sip every mile, like type of thing. Like that's how much I was keeping track of stuff. And it was just too hot and too exposed to be riding like that. And so I pulled off to the side of the road. I was just exhausted. I put up my rain fly against a creosote bush as a wind block. And I just laid underneath it, kind of curled in the fetal position. And I pulled out this bag of, it's kind of like Sour Patch Kids, but they were Bigfoot version. It was like, you know, clearance at some hotel gas station (laughs) I stopped at, you know, previously. I'm like shoving this candy in my mouth in this sad state. And all of a sudden I started feeling like stinging on my feet and I'd put myself right in some type of anthill. And I was just like, just go at it, buddies. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was just that out of it. Oh. So I finally get up and decide, all right, I need to keep riding. The sun was starting to get lower in the sky. And as I was riding, this guy pulls up next to me in a truck. I hadn't seen anyone for like a day and a half. And he's just like, what on earth are you doing out here? And so I told him about the race. And he's like, are you familiar with a Deco spring? And I was like, nope. And he's like, you see that old cabin up there? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, there's a big spring right behind that. And so he told me how to get there. Like we looked at the route because I didn't want to have to like go off route too Mm -hmm. far. So I told him I'm going to go up this hill and around the corner. And he's like, okay, from there, take this playa, go up and you're going to hit the spring. And I did it. And like the water just rejuvenated me so much. It was actually, I got up there and it was like a trough. So there was... Um, maybe a 15-inch diameter pipe coming out of the ground, just dumping water, I don't know how many gallons a freaking minute into this big trough. And so I just took off my shoes and I sat in the trough and it was just like immediate rejuvenation, (laughs) drank tons and tons of that water. And it just, and I mean, just in those matter of minutes from where I'm laying on the ground being like, oh my God, I can't handle life to just feeling like, all right, now I can go knock out another 60 miles. We take for granted this ability we have in our daily lives to get like fresh water and food. And I mean, we put ourselves in these positions out there where we're depriving ourselves, but there are people all over the world that in their daily lives don't have access to those things. So I think like bikepacking and going through situations like that gives me an appreciation for what we really have here. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That's a valid, that's a super valuable perspective to have. And when we don't Uh, readily have access to unless we kind of put, we manufacture uh, difficult things for ourselves to give ourselves those opportunities because life is so plush. Yeah. You know, we have it pretty good. We do. Yeah. Uh, You're struggling and you're living in your van. No, you're not, you're quote unquote, you know, like that's, that's struggling in America, you know, and that's by choice. It is by choice. (laughs) And yeah, I definitely have never felt like I'm struggling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about your um, introduction to bikepacking. You said it, you about 10 years ago, I think? Yeah, I'd moved to Phoenix 
to go back to school for a career change, getting into archaeology. And my car was breaking down at the time. And so I thought, I'm in Phoenix. It's I can ride bike year-round. I hadn't been riding bike as an adult, but I was like, I'm going to do this. So I sold my car to a mechanic who knew all the shit that was falling apart on it. And I bought a bike from Walmart, one of those little Granite Peak $99 bikes. Uh. And I started commuting to work in school. So I was doing about 10 miles a day. And at the time, I'd been looking at doing a through hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to get off the, I think it would take me like six months or something I'd, I'd calculated. I knew I wouldn't be able to get off that with going back to school. So since I was on a bike, I was like, I wonder if they have bike routes, like bike packing. And so I found the Adventure Cycling Association's page and found the Great Divide route. And then in researching that, I found the Tour Divide movie. So I was like, holy smokes, people race this. You know, like, <laughs> if I go as fast as I possibly can, that I can... That Tour Divide movie has brought more people into <laughs> bikepacking than yeah, anything. Yeah, totally. So I was like, I can see so much more, you know, so much more quickly. And I can handle taking, like, say, a, a month off, which is when I did finish the route. It, it took me a month. It took me 30 days. But I was able to see all that so much more quickly than seeing it hiking. So so you were thinking about being doing PCT as but, a hike, yeah, and then... But then you switched to the Great Divide route? Yep, I switched to biking the Great Divide route then because I knew I'd have time. And the, my first try was a disaster. So since I hadn't been riding as an adult until I did this commuting thing, this was in my 30s, I didn't train properly. I think the longest ride I did before I attempted the Tour Divide was probably 60 miles. I hadn't actually overnighted with my gear either. <laughs> so I line up, uh, Grand Depart, heading northbound. Because what was, year? This was 2013. Okay. Yeah, 2013. So I line up, heading northbound, and I had stuff like falling off my bike. When I hit the Gila, like just bouncing down those kind of like rocky roads, stuff was flying off the bike. Stuff was like hitting my front tire every time I... Um, That's kind of funny. Don't, I mean, it, because Gila is like well into the race. I mean, you're getting towards the end. And by that time you still had stuff like flying. Oh no, this was, I was going northbound. You so were this going was northbound. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. That so makes... I, between stuff falling off my bike, I was severely sunburned. I wasn't putting on sunscreen often enough. I learned what saddle sores were by getting them on that tour divide attempt. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't even make it through New Mexico before I was like, I called the guys dating at the time and I was like, come pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> but just those few days out there, the lessons I took away, I was able then to go back in 2014 and I finished at northbound in 30 days. That was an ITT because I couldn't hit the grand apart with school and stuff. And then the following year, I did it in 23 days southbound. So all it takes, I think, is just getting out there with your gear, putting yourself in the situation and seeing what, what could go wrong. And that's where I, you know, faulted in my first attempt was I didn't train with my gear. I didn't overnight. I didn't ride enough. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what the heck I was Those doing. Those are some of the basic things you should do to yeah. get ready for a 2,700 mile you really race. Should. You know, maybe some people might. <laughs> some, some people might, but. So uh, in 20, did you, you, did you do the group start in 2020 or sorry, what was that? 20, so it's 13, 14 and 15 are yep, the years that you did 13 was it. the group start, 14 and 15, I ITT you both ITT ways both of because them. of school and work. Uh, was that, um, was that scary to do it as an ITT? I guess the great divide isn't as scary because it's so well known. There's so many resupplies, people know what you're doing out there kind of, but yeah, I guess I, I grew up in a rural area, and when we were kids, we would be out playing in the woods after dark at night by ourselves, and 
I think just based on the environment I grew up in and also being old enough where I didn't grow up with like cell phones and helicopter policing and stuff like that or helicopter helicopter parenting <laughs> I I've always kind of felt comfortable like being out in the woods by myself yeah so there was no point where I was like seriously worried about myself now before I did my northbound ITT that I finished uh, Matthew Lee had messaged and he said um you know, being out there by yourself, like, please turn off your tracker at least two miles before you camp, you know, so people don't know exactly oh, where you are. And yeah. then and then that was the first time when he said that, I was like, oh, I guess I am out there alone and yeah. a, a woman. And so that was kind of the first moment where I thought like, oh, maybe I'm doing something where I should be a little bit more cognizant of yeah, the, just the potential dangers and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it's, it's kind of nice that you, that wasn't even on your radar before that. Yeah. Um, that means you hadn't had any negative interactions that would have put it on your radar yep. or anything. Um, while we're on the subject as a woman, as a, as a woman who does a lot of these, uh, a lot of adventuring by yourself, ha have you ever had any like major issues or any, I don't know. The reason I'm asking is not just to pry, but because a lot of women listen to the podcast. And one of the fears is solo travel as a woman. Yeah. That's a fear that is common among many women. And so, you know, I, I don't know if there's any tips you've learned or any experiences you've had that would help, you know, put perspective on adventuring as a woman, a solo woman, you know. I haven't had too many experiences where I've been like worried or scared. Um, I, the couple I've had, I think, weren't because I was a woman. Like if I was a man, they would have been equally uh, threatening. So mm. the, when when you and Lily Outen did the, um, the the panel at Natural. Yeah, State Rocks and Republic. Uh, yeah, State we Rock did Republic. a we did a high country race panel discussion and Lily and I kind of like moderated it. Yeah. yeah. So if people listen to that episode, I do recount an, a story where I ran into a couple of meth heads at like midnight in Shady, Arkansas. And that was pretty terrifying. Like, I don't remember the details well enough to recount it now, but yeah, go back and listen to that <laughs> one. But I actually thought like, I I had a feeling like, you know, when you get pulled over by the cops and your gut just like sinks. Yeah. At least I get that feeling. Like oh, yeah. I had that happen, but it was like the worst ever. It was just like my, I felt like my whole body was just shutting down and I, I thought I was going to die. Like I thought these people were, were going to kill me. And then not because I was a woman, but because they were on drugs and I could have been anybody. So that, that was what a bad experience. A, I have to add, like what happened that made you feel like you were going to die. That's a very okay, extreme so I, I feeling. I guess I'll try and recount the situation. Oh, this is the part back. you're a little so, fuzzy on. Yeah. So what happened was um, I was climbing. We were over by Dick's Gap Overlook, for anyone who's familiar with the high country route. And um, Kyle Farrar and I were kind of like leapfrogging. So we got to the overlook together and I took a picture for him. He took a picture for me. My phone dies. So I know my phone's dead. And I, he stayed there to call his wife and then I zipped down the hill. There was a Baptist church down in this town, Shady, where I was like, sweet, I can like plug in for a minute, fill up my waters and take a nap at this church. So I've got this church in mind. I'm zipping down the hill. I come up this very slight hill into town, which is just like one main drag with a couple houses on either side. And all of a sudden I'm blinded by these two headlights, but they're not at car headlight level and they're not even, and they're kind of moving about. Oh, yeah. It was like a rave. And, but they're just severely bright. So I pull up 
And I went to dodge the lights and this woman stepped out in front of me. So I like slammed on my brakes, slid my bike sideways, jumped off and put my bike between me and her. And the guy with the lights was immediately like, where are you know, like, what are you doing? Where are you coming from? And I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, like I'm on. meth makes you paranoid. Um, yeah. So they were like. They were, she wasn't as bad as him, but he was off his rocker. And so I just explained, like, I'm doing a bike race. There's a guy right behind me. And so then he's like, oh, I don't see a guy. Where's the guy right behind you? And I was like, he's on his way down. And I keep thinking, like, come on, Kyle, just get down this hill. Like, there needs to be two of us. But they kept looking into the woods. They kept looking out around them. And so I was like, are there more of them? Uh -huh. Are they surrounding me? So then at that point, that's where I was like, I'm, I'm a fucking goner. Like, I am so dead. But he, he went on to say that they were looking for escapees. So he's like, Two people escaped from prison and apparently a man and a woman. Oh my gosh. <laughs> According to him. And so he's like, the cops are checking cars. We're checking, you know, <laughs> people on bike and on foot. And that was just like, dude. Yeah, you're tweaking, you're brother. You're so off your rocker. <laughs> and so I was like, I, I explained to him the race and I kept trying to show him my GPS. And at one point I was like, see this tracker back here? So I had him shine his light on my spot, which was like covered in mud because we'd been riding in the rain on and off all day. I like wiped the mud off of it and I like popped the little cap that's over the SOS button. I just kind of sat my finger there. Yeah. I was like, if I need to, I'm going to push this thing. So I was like, this is broadcasting my speed and location every 30 seconds, you know, exaggerating. You every, told Every him. 30 seconds. People are watching us online, you know. So you were telling this to yeah, them. Yeah, I'm telling this yes. to them. I'm like, yeah, so people know where we are. They're watching. It's this big, exciting thing. And eventually I talked them down uh, there was like a weird back and forth for a little bit. And uh, eventually his lady kept telling him, let's just go inside. She's fine. Let's just go inside. And he's like, well, I guess if you show me the route, I'll be okay. And so I showed him my GPS, which at that point, it was just like one little purple line that kind of jags through town. And I'm like, here's the route. And he's like, checks out. <laughs> and so then they walk across the field back to their house. And I, zipped, I went past that church and I just decided to go to Hatfield, which was God. So I left there at like 1230 in the morning. I didn't get to Hatfield until three hours later. And it started immediately raining as soon as I hit the dirt road right outside of town. Mm. And I just like hauled ass. I had this weird feeling the entire time. And Kyle never came down. So I was like, I told him before I left, I was like, there's one more cyclist right behind me. He's doing the same thing. You can just leave him alone, let him on through. Well, then I looked at the tracker later and he had camped like a oh. mile back. Oh, he stopped shit. and camped. So wow. that's why he never showed up. That's crazy. Yeah. So that was a scary experience. I think that was more just like, that could have been anyone, oh, yeah. man or woman. So nothing... I'd say more than anything, being a woman out there, I get a lot of people who are just incredulous to the fact that I know where I am and what I'm doing and I'm okay. So I'll get a lot of people that are like, you lost? And I'm like, nope. And they're like, oh, come on now. You know, do you know where you are? And there was one guy that was like, do you need a ride to town? And I told him, nope, I'm in a race. I can't take a ride. And he's just like, kind of like, come on now, you know? Oh, yeah. And then he finally, he stops. I'm walking up this hill. This was, this was actually in Arkansas on the American Trail Race. And he finally like, stops the truck, gets out, shuts the door. And he's like, just get in the truck. And it wasn't kind of like a, I didn't feel like I was going to be kidnapped. I think he was just like, this woman needs safety. Yeah, like yeah. that's how it came across. And you he know? thought you were being stubborn. Yeah, I thought and I was, he was being like, stubborn. It's fine. Get in. Come yeah, on. Just come on. It was that tone of voice. And I was like, dude, I'm in a fucking race. Like, look at this tracker. People are watching me right now. They know exactly where I am, what speed I'm going. If I get in a truck, they'll be able to tell I'm in a truck. Yeah. And then he just like got in and took off. So... Well, I think that's a, a really good tip and it's actually something that I've shared and it's the exact same thing that I do. Um, and, you know, 
I've I've had, as you said, the situations I've been in. I don't have anything to do with gender. It's just like there's some people out there a little little, little questionable, mm-hmm. and you should be on your guard and aware. And yeah. you know, like um, mine happened with somebody who was drunk at uh, you know like two thirty in the morning at like a church. Uh, I was looking for water. And he's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And I did the exact same thing you did. I'm like, I got my emergency button button ready to hit. Yep. I'm also like, yeah, I'm doing a race. Everybody's watching me. There's like 200 of us out here, you know, da, 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 da. And um, another, the only other tip that I heard, well, uh, the other one that comes to mind, I should say, actually comes from Hal Russell, who you, um, who you race with at the American Trail Race. I know you mentioned earlier, uh, but what he would do is he would take a picture with the people, like a selfie yeah. or take a picture of them and be like, yep, I uploaded that to the cloud. Everybody knows who you are now. <laughs> That's really clever. I actually did a similar thing before I was biking. I did a lot of bike or backpacking and I was on the Florida Scenic Trail for a while. It starts in the panhandle and goes like all the way across and then down to the Everglades. Yeah. And there, since I was just out there like kind of tromping along and stuff, there were a couple of days where it was like downpouring and people would come by and be like, hey, do you need a ride? And so I'd be like, yeah, you know, cruise me on down to this next trailhead or something like that. But I always, I, I would tell them, hey, I'm going to be a total weirdo, but I'm out here by myself. I'm going to take a picture of your license plate and it's going to upload to the internet if you don't mind. Yeah. And a couple of people were just like, okay, whatever. And then there was one guy that zipped off. Yeah. When I did that. So it's like, did I avoid getting kidnapped or was he just like, I don't want to deal with this? Either weirdo. way. But either way, it's like a, yeah, it's a good something. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. See, good idea. See, the, 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 just uh, like all things, I think um, if you're going to go in the wilderness, know about the wildlife, know yeah. about the snakes that'll bite you or the water supply, like know what you're getting into totally, uh, and be aware and kind of take care of yourself, that kind of thing. Yeah, I've always been more conscientious of the wildlife hmm. than the people. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, out there, you don't run into a lot of people. It's usually like no. in towns that you know, mm-hmm. you're know you going to run into people. But I think Matthew Lee's tip about, um, you know, one, turning your tracker off a mile or two before a camp, that's smart. Um, the other thing is not sharing your social media location when you're there. Yep. You know, it's like the day later, two days later, whatever. Yeah. Hey, I was at this place, like mm-hmm. not there now. Yep. Anyway. So, uh, you got into bike packing. Um, what has been, what has been the thing that like keeps, keeps you in bike packing? Like what has drawn you into it? You're obviously like motivated by seeing lots of things. Is is that just the best modality for you? Yeah, or one of the best. Obviously, like, you said you like to kayak. Yeah, and hike, I like to do all so. sorts of stuff. But with the bike packing, especially on the routes that are more remote with greater distances between resupply and that are really on back roads, I feel like it's such a good opportunity to just unplug from daily life. No screens. A lot of the races I've done, there's no service except for when you're in a town. And sometimes that can be a couple days basically with, with no cell service. And it's like being forced to extract myself from the hustle and bustle of normal daily life and the grind and just get out there and really start to listen and appreciate, you know, the sounds and sights of nature and just being out there powered by my own body. So disconnecting and reconnecting. Yeah. Good way so, of putting it. I just came up with that. 
way to go. Patrick. I'm sure someone said that before. It doesn't seem like that much of a leap, but it may. Anyway, um, you trademark that. I'm yeah, t- TM that. Uh, have you ever considered yourself? You do a lot of races, but do you ever consider yourself a racer? Do you ever race, or what is your? Uh, I race myself. I I do put in my best effort. There have been races where I'm. I mean, I'm not like sleep deprived myself real bad. I, I've done some where it's like, I make sure I get like six hours of sleep a night, which wouldn't be competitive by any means. But then there are some where I kind of like try and leave it all out on the table, but it's still like me trying to get my own PR. I, over the last few years, I haven't looked at the tracker for the most part during events because I don't want what other people are doing to influence what I do. Yeah. Cause I think it's futile to try and like chase a person, um, especially if they're just, naturally faster and stronger than I am. You know, I'd have to sleep deprive myself and haul ass all day to try and keep up with someone. So yeah. that makes it not fun. So yeah, I'm out there. I I definitely um, am interested in where I place in the long run. And, but I'm not like racing as far as trying to get number one. And, and I'm just not, that's not within my capabilities either. Is it know? not? Yeah, no, I think I'm, I've, I'm usually good, a good for front mid pack, I've had, I think when I did the French Divide in 2018, I think I ended up finishing 19th. I had like eight people pass me on the last night because I slept and they rode through the night. So I was doing really good on that one. I know there were 135 people signed up. I don't know how many many actually showed up. So that one, I was, you know, top 20 the whole time. Um, That's probably, the, I guess, the best I've done. Well, in an event that big. You were telling me yesterday that your strength is is just kind of going for long distances, but just like a nice, smooth, steady pace yeah. or something. Yep. Take a smooth, steady pace. If I want to try and place well, I'll just sleep less. I'm not fast by any means. Like say with something like your East Texas showdown, a gravel race, like I have a hard time keeping a pace of 10 plus miles per hour on a gravel route. So stuff like that, I'm just out to like meet people, have fun you know, knock out a big ride on a weekend and yeah. enjoy the party. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm curious about uh, the American Trail Race. There's not many people who have done that. I'm not even sure how many people know what the American Trail Race is. Yeah, I think it's defunct now. It was yeah, I um, think so. the brainchild of Billy Rice and Neil Belchenko, I believe, put the whole thing together. And so they ran it in 2017. I think... And 18, I think the only people who did it in 18 was Bill Peshka and Mike Ingram. They both did ITTs, I believe. And then there were several more of us out there in 2019 again. I think now Indy does the second half of the race as its own thing. It's from Salida to yes. where it ends in Oregon. He calls that Salida to the Sea. So the original race was from the Outer Banks in North Carolina to... Port Orford, Oregon, and where it starts is actually on one of those little outer islands. So you take a ferry out, you all stay the night um, camping, and then in the morning, the race starts with everyone loading back up onto the ferry, going to the mainland, and then taking off. So those first couple miles, you're just on a boat with everybody, kind of like, it's kind of, it kind of gets rid of the nerves for me, at least, Mm. like from the start. You're just chilling. You're looking at the other islands. There's some that have wild horses, so everyone's kind of like looking out for the wild horses Mm. and stuff, and... Yeah, then you hit the the mainland, everyone gets their bikes ready and goes. And that one was, that's a, man, I kind of, I wish it was still going, but I understand no one wanting to organize the thing. (laughs) It's kind of a hassle. But 
The first few states are like all paved roads with no good shoulder because it's the East Coast. It's all old, skinny roads and stuff. But I found that drivers there were like really gracious in giving me space as long as I rode offensively and kind of like turned around and waved at folks and stuff. Uh, There are only, God, I think there were only like three or four bike shops on route. So over 5,000 miles. Wow. um, Not much for services there. There was a section out toward, I think it was when I was in Oregon, the second part of Oregon, because you start, there's Oregon part one and two. So you go into Oregon for a little bit, then you go into Nevada, then you're back in Oregon. So Oregon part two, I went three days of missing resupply because a lot of these towns you go through, they might have one shop that's open three days a week for like weird hours. So there's definitely a lot more planning that goes into a route like that. And that's actually how I got into single speeding. Oh, really? Yeah, I was riding through, I don't think I was quite to Arkansas yet. I might have been in Arkansas, but my derailleur broke. And so I'm sitting there on the side of the road thinking like, all right, I know I need to like somehow convert this thing into a single speed. I don't quite know what I'm doing. So I was monkeying around. And at the time I was leapfrogging um, with a guy who um, called his, we had service luckily. He called his mechanic and he's like, hey, you know, Lindsay's trying to, uh, get her bike set up single speed. What does she need to do? And he's like, use the derailleur as a tensioner. Yeah. So um, I hooked it up and I did a real shit job. Like I didn't have the chain lined up like with the gear that was directly, uh-huh. like I didn't, didn't know to like shift it and make the chain straight. So I was like, I'll cock at an angle. I don't even know what gear ratio I was in, <laughs> but I just went for it. And I ended up doing single speed for eight days. And I used to always think like single speeders are nuts. Why would you ever ride in the, basically the wrong gear all the time? And stuff? <laughs> My God, did I feel like I was like so powerful hill climbing and then like the forced walks. And then when I was spinning out in the flats, like just being forced to like kind of like chill and cruise and look at what was going on around me, it definitely like created this whole Zen state of riding. So I always kind of had it in my head, you know, I should do a race single speed. And in talking to the guys who did the documentary for the Arkansas High Country, hmm. prior to that, they were, they were just like, have you ever ridden single speed? One of them, Brian Hill asked, and he's like, I don't think there's like a women's single speed record. And so we looked online and we're like, nope. So I was like, all right, I'm going to single speed this one. <laughs> Put the ladies on the board and then someone can come by and smash my time later. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, the, Ar- the American Trail Race was like a really special experience in that I, I got to problem solve more than normal. I had bigger mechanicals than normal. I got single speed for the first time. Just like the length of it, it took 47 days for me to finish that race. And yeah, yeah, that's just enormous. being out there for that long in the woods and being so remote in some of those spots, just not seeing people or vehicles for days and seen so many different landscapes. It went through everything, desert, high mountain. We, we had snowy mountain passes, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, would you consider that? At least it's definitely the hardest bikepacking route in North America, easily, right? Well, because of sheer distance, yeah. But I think as far as... And resupply. And resupply, definitely. I honestly think, though, I've done the Utah Mixed Epic in 21 and 22, and Tim Tate throws together one hell of a difficult route. And his, <laughs> his is difficult because there are several different types of challenges thrown into a, a shorter race. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the one year I did, I think it was 960 miles, and this last year it was, like, 640. And so within that chunk of space, you're riding through, again, several different 
types of environments. So you might be high up on the mountain, kind of like, you know, what people would envision when they're riding through, like, say, the Rockies or something. But then you're down in the desert, like no water, hot, exposed, just crazy rock formations. And the terrain is like there are just some purely unrideable sections, not because of grade, like, say, with Doom or something where it's just like too steep to ride, but just unrideable because it's this scree ridden hill that I, I can't get traction to ride up. And then I'm stuck walking down as well. So there, your mind is just having to deal with all these different scenarios. So I think Utah makes Epic to me, even though it's shorter, is more difficult. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's actually interesting. Yeah. I knew it was hard. Everybody it's hard. says it's yeah. hard. But. <laughs> it's like if you are at a point where you feel stagnant with bikepacking or bikepack <laughs> racing, do a Utah Mixed Epic. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I only like to watch that one. I would yeah. like to go and watch and take pictures, but it, it's it's intimidating. Yeah, uh, it's it, fun. Well, in this last year, there was like next to nothing for water. <laughs> so I think that's where people were struggling was like, just really rationing on water. And there was no cell service on the course except for the three towns we went to. And then I remember before the last 40 miles, the last, I think it was 40 miles, our single track. And it's not just like, you know, fun flowy single track. It's like you climb up onto these rocks and you're up on the rock formations, single track. So even that, like riding fully loaded, I was doing a lot more walking than normal. So like right before that section, I had cell service too. But so there was no like keeping track of where anybody else was. There was no getting in touch with the loved ones, and you're really just out there by yourself, struggling. He changes that route every year, right? Yeah, and he actually, he's turned over the reins on that one to Jackie Baker now that he's in uh, Colorado running Western Trail Rush. What is Western Trail Rush? So that's a a one-day gravel event. He does, I think last year there was like an an 80-miler and like a 45-miler, and so I went out there for that, and true Tim Tate style. It's not just like, here's your 80 mile gravel ride. (laughs) It was also, here are some steep ass hills you got to climb up. There was, there were a couple of like rocky descents that resembled, you know, like almost like single track or something. I remember talking to some people who were out there on like gravel bikes. I rode my mountain bike, Mm. (laughs) but people on like gravel bikes with really skinny tires who were just like, this isn't gravel. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, it's Tim, what do you expect? You know, it's more fun. Yeah. And that one was really cool because he's got aid stations set up and in the evening, everyone camps out at a place called Camp V, which is right outside of Nuclear, Colorado. And it's, or I guess it's in Nuclear, but They have like all these cool art exhibits. So there's like a silo that's been turned into a stargazing area. So like I went up there at night when we were having like a bonfire and stuff afterward. And you just like lay down and look up at the sky and just like stars everywhere. They have some cool light displays and stuff and a little chapel. Yeah, it's really neat. Wow. Tim's moved on to gravel. He he, uh, turned over the rain. I remember that happened like... What, just this four year. months ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, so yeah, I'm excited to see what Jackie does with it. I don't know. I haven't talked to her. I don't know if she's doing completely different courses or if she's going to, you know, build off some of the old courses and maybe alter some things. Or because yeah. I would like to ride there. I didn't do the first year, so that was Salt Lake City to St. George, hmm. and I've never been to St. George. So I think that would be a real fun one to do. I went to St. George when I was 15. My grandfather lived there. I remember doing kickflips on my skateboard in his driveway <laughs> when it was like 112 degrees and 0% humidity. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. It was like hot and I wasn't sweating. <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah. The desert is such a weird place. It was, it was really weird. 
Um, man, there, you've done so much. It's like hard to pick like what to talk, what to talk about, but, um, I, I, let's, let's skip ahead a little to what I think when I started following you or kind of, yeah, when I became more aware of like your journey and your story is when you built your own, uh, bike, you went to the frame building school, you you built your own bike. And then like, surprisingly after that, you signed up for my race, the showdown, and then you went and, uh, yo-yoed the doom route shortly thereafter, all on this bike you built. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I was like, holy shit, that is so cool. So that was like the, the kind of like, I was like, yeah, I want to, I kind of want to hear that progression. And so, um, I'm really curious about the bike that you built. Um, I, let's start with like, I mean, yeah, I, I want to know everything. Like, how did you find out about it? Why build a bike? How is the bike ride? <laughs> <laughs> the bike rides. Amazingly. Apparently it seems to be doing yeah, good. I have to, it's actually my, the best frame and best bike build I've ever had because you're just gloating because you was, built it yourself. The frame was built with my body geometry in mind. Oh, so the, okay. the bike build actually came about in a weird way. I had done the Washita triple crown last year as part of the high country race series. And I was out there. It's the most single track I've ever done in, a, in an event. That one is about, I think, 130 miles of single track, 50 miles of gravel and paved, um, linking those single track routes. And while I was out there, I hadn't ridden single track in a while. I, I stopped counting wrecks at eight. And almost every single time I wrecked, I would drop my bike on the drive side. And my, my, so my mountain bike is geared. Hmm. My gravel bike is set up single speed, but with one of those dangly chain tensioners. So I got to thinking, I was like, man, I'd really like to do this single speed, and but I don't want to use another one of those dangly chain tensioners to convert it. I should buy a new frame with like the paragon For mechanical drops. reasons, so it doesn't break. Yeah, it's just, one just more like thing. one more thing that yeah. can break out there. And I have a propensity to break things on the trail. So I started looking at bike frames. I looked at a couple of chumbas and then... Um, some friends of mine were like, hey, you know, you should check out some frame builders. And so I contacted several, but they were booked out well through this coming winter, which, you know, good for them, obviously, but bad for me. And so then I got online and I was like, well, what if I just like build a frame myself? So I looked up, you know, build a bike frame with no experience. And luckily, lucky for me, classes popped up. Whoa. So I started looking at these classes and the one I went to is run by Steve Garn. It's Brew Bikes in Creston, North Carolina. And he had openings as of January of this year. So I was like, shit, if I get in there right away, I can get a frame built and I can do all my races on this bike this year. Okay, so let's pause real quick. Um, These frame building classes, are these for just helping people build their own frame or are they for helping teach people how to build frames that want to go on to like build a bike company or something like what? both both okay. yeah a person could go to this class with the intent of becoming a frame builder right. or they can just go in and be like hey this is what i want spec wise i want to participate in the build i don't know what the heck i'm doing you know hold my hand and guide me which is where i was at like i have no desire to become a frame builder but i it did really appeal to me to have a frame built with my body geometry in mind versus just buy a frame off the rack So I get to this class and Steve and I talked a bit beforehand. So he knew what I was looking for and then I knew what was capable. So I I knew what I was going to get basically, which was really nice. And I had the only 
welding experience I had prior to this, he TIG welds for his frames, was I welded like a lopsided can crusher in junior high or high school. So I had like zero experience. But there's one full day where where you're learning how to weld and stuff. And obviously, even a natural, I think, wouldn't probably be good enough after that day to like weld their own frame. But he mm. put on his website, I will assist with final weld if necessary. So I was like, good. I know I can go there yeah. and I'll come out of there with a rideable frame. So... So yeah, I showed up and he spent a day or two going over like just basically what goes into building a frame, kind of the history of bikes themselves and components and stuff, which was, I like to understand how something works. That was another part of this bike build. It's like if I work on the frame and then build the bike up myself with, you know, assistance, I know how things work. So if stuff goes wrong, I'm better equipped to problem solve and fix it. So, so yeah, we, we did the bike frame build. Steve is an awesome guy. I highly, highly recommend his class, Brew Bikes, if anyone's interested in taking a frame building class. And it's in like middle of nowhere mountains, North Carolina. So there's like no cell service. You can truly just like unwind, cut yourself off from society and take a week focused on this frame build. And that's how long it takes a week? Yeah, it was a week long course. And how much is the course? I think I paid about 2500 Okay. And then I bought bad. the Paragon Drop separate. So it was under $3,000 for everything. Yeah. And so what it was did, really reasonable. What did you get at the end? I mean, uh, a frame and a fork? like Just the, the frame. Just the frame. Yeah, just the okay. frame. Okay. So it's a, you know, you can, I mean, it depends on the frame, but, you know, a... Man, I bet a custom frame. I bet if you just ordered a custom frame, you're going to be at twenty five to three thousand dollars or close to that anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, I was looking at. I think the Yopon, the Chumbo, yeah. that one looks real nice too. But I think that one would have been about three grand unpainted. Yeah. So, because that's that's the other one I was considering. So I thought, well, I can either just flat out buy that, or I can do this and have the experience and kind yeah. of learn a bit more about bikes. So that's why, and then have it made for you know my body geometry in mind. So. That's super cool. Yeah. I, I'm semi-familiar of this, but haven't really heard all the details. And I'm I'm interested. I'm going to contact this guy and be like, hey, oh, man, yeah. you want to do a podcast? And I'll, you know. That would be amazing. Yeah. And dude, I'm gonna Steve be up has there. stories. He has, oh, yeah? oh yeah, he races like motorcycles and stuff. He's He has got several Bonneville flat records. And he's just oh, like, shit. he's been doing this for 50 years. And he- Steve's the man. He is the man. He's got- just like just a wealth of knowledge and just a lot of entertaining stories from his trips along the way. So That's yeah, you so would have awesome. a good time with him. I just told you yesterday, I, I booked a, um, a, a, a podcast interview in Asheville, North, Asheville, North Carolina for August of this year. And you said he's in where? Creston, which is just across the Tennessee... North Carolina border up in the northwest part I'm of the state. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to give this Yeah, go. I'm interested. So keep selling me, keep selling keep me. Keep selling me. So yeah, uh, I finished what, the frame. How and is, then... <laughs> like, I'm curious, like, what kind of bike you built? And and I'm really interested in, like, what it's like to have a custom, like, a, a, a frame built for your body. Like, can you notice? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've gotten fit on all my previous bikes I've had. And... Even getting fit on my bikes, I've always had this like little bit of neck, shoulder discomfort after 100 plus mile days during races. And I really wanted to get rid of that. So I, I told him what I found uncomfortable about my previous frames okay. and stuff. And we kind of, so we started based on my specialized Epic. Like this is the starting point. This is what we need to fix. And just kind of tweaked the frame geometry on that. 
And another part of it, too, was like this, I think, the stem height on the fork, um, the way it was when I bought the bikes off the rack. It's always cut a little too short, I think, for me, for my reach. So when I finished the frame build, um, Mitch at Black Saddle Bike Shop was like really gracious in letting me use his space. And then Brett Stepanik, who works there, helped me build the bike up. So I had access to all the tools and stuff. And he showed me like, you know, how to ream the headset and like put that in and all that. But um, when I got, when it got time for the fork to get put in, we left it real nice and tall and gave me like a solid 40 millimeters to work with as far as, you know, if this feels too tall, we'll shorten it, you know, a little bit and stuff. But actually after, after Doom, I think it's perfect. Like I have zero neck and shoulder pain from that race like I used to have. So I think it really makes a difference. And I haven't been fit on that bike yet either because I just uh -huh. haven't had time to get in. So I can't even imagine once I actually go in for a fitting, like how much better it's even going to feel. Yeah. So it really does make a difference to have, I, I think, a frame built for you. That's so cool. So it's a, uh, is it a drop bar, a flat bar? Flat bar. So yeah, I built it as a 29er mountain bike, can, can fit up to 2.4, I believe, for tire size. I usually ride between 2.1 and 2.3, mm -hmm. so that's good. And with the Paragon Drops, I can have it either single speed or geared. So I have everything I need to convert it to geared if I ever want to for an event. That's another question I wanted to ask you. Um, so you're in a van. I think you're limited to two bikes, right? Yep. So uh, your two bikes are what? My two bikes are this custom brew frame and then a specialized diverge. And that I've currently converted to single speed, but I still have everything I need to turn it back to geared. So I kind of have four bike options in those two bikes in the van. And they're both flat bar. The Diverge is drop bar. Oh, it is. Yeah. oh, it's that's a gravel bike. Yeah, that's a gravel bike. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got that mixed up in my head. Uh, yeah, so the Diverge is a, your gravel bike, yep. and then you have your mountain bike. And oh, on that uh, on the one you built your mountain bike, so that's the one where you have your the handlebars with kind of the arrow grip in there, or is that your gravel? No, bike? No, that's the gravel bike. Yeah, uh -huh. I just this I actually for the first time in, gosh, almost all ten years of doing these races don't have aero bars. I've always had aero bars on my mountain bike more to attach things to than to actually use as aero bars. But I went without on this one and it's been a little bit to get used to not having those extra, at least hand positions yeah. or space to like hook things up. But I, I like it. Why? Yeah. I like having the bars. You like having the bars? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, on long trips, it's another yeah. hand position. I mean, I think at high country, it doesn't make sense because you wouldn't utilize, or, yeah. or, or Doom, Doom didn't use it. you wouldn't utilize them as much. I think on Showdown, it does make sense because you could use them quite a bit more. So I think it depends yeah, on I the terrain. Yeah, I Showdown, yeah. Um, I was fine without them for that. But again, I'm not like hauling ass down in the arrows, like going for speed. So I think it also depends on a person's riding style and like goals oh i'm never going for speed i no. just, like the <laughs> just like the comfort i like the comfort yeah, yeah. And, and different mounting positions i mean you have all that stuff so i do kind of miss the pads because when i'm hike biking i like to put a hand hmm. on the pad as i push the bike uphill yeah so what did you name your bike that you built it does not have a name yet oh Leave That's a, a big question. Leave Everybody a comment <laughs> below if you name, have a name, bike. name suggestion for Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, pretty much every bike I've ever had. When I first started biking, I don't know why I named my first bike Troy. 
So then the next one was like Troy Jr., then it was Cousin Troy, then it was Son of Troy. And then it, it became Proxy because I was like, this bike stands in for me for like every photo. So then I had a series of bikes named like Proxy, Proxy 2, Proxy 3. <laughs> but yeah, I have no clue what to call this one. Uh, so your last name is Shepard. Yep. So maybe it's like a Sh Shepard's Designs. Um, that could be the bike company. Uh, and then what the cane. <laughs> we'll call this one the cane. <laughs> the staff. I don't know. The staff. <laughs> All right. We'll work on it. Yeah. If you have a better suggestion, leave it in the comments below. Please. Oh, man. What else do we need to know about your bike? I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to know about your bike before... The fork is a Fox 34 Stepcast. I know that much. I love that thing. That's a great fork. Yeah. That's what I have on I, my chum oh, about. I absolutely yeah. love it. I uh, dislocated a C1 through 3 a few years back, riding bike. And um, that's all kind of like back in place and good now. But I've definitely noticed ever since like I need a front uh, fork, bouncy fork. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, and that's a, yep. that's the best fork I've ever ridden in my entire oh, it's fantastic. life. fantastic. Yeah. Yep. It's shockingly good compared to other forks. Yeah. It's the only one I've ever just like bought outright. I've always just used like all my bikes came with rock shocks, I guess is the one that's like common. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Mine came on that, uh, the Chumba Stella tie that I have. Um, it's actually Vince's the owner of Chumba's old bike. I bought his, uh, bike and it oh, came cool. with the step cast and, um, I, right now I have it set up with that carbon rigid, rigid, but, um, yeah, anyway, I like that step cast. That's a step cast. That's a great fork. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right, cool. Let's move on to the East Texas showdown. So you brought, yeah. you brought your unnamed bike that you built. Yep. You don't even love it enough to give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much that I want to give it the right name. That's so good. Oh, that was such a good comeback. <laughs> uh, what, what made you sign up for the showdown? How did that get on your radar? I had some friends that had talked about it and said they liked it. And it's um, knowing that it's like a, a gravel race, no crazy weird terrain. Um, I don't want to call it simple. Yeah, simple as, is as fine. Far, yeah, yeah, okay. It's as far, an easy, as far it's an easy as like, one. <laughs> yeah, okay. as far as terrain goes, it's super rideable, not wild, no unexpected things you know, except for this year, we had the massive water crossing for those of us who weren't fast enough to get past it before it became a river. But I, I liked the idea that it, it was a long, re it was just a long weekend. It like being at the bullet, it sounded like it was a good party before and after. It's a long weekend ride. You can just don't have to take a ton of time off work or anything. Just go see some friends. And that's what I, a lot of these races are for me is if I see a lot of my bike buddies signing up for stuff, it's a really good excuse to go hang with my buddies. That's right. Yeah. Have you uh, done much riding in Texas? No. I've, I'd ridden, I'd hit a tiny corner of Texas during yeah. American Trail Race. And I think that's the only riding I'd ever done in Texas. That's kind of the fun thing about the race that I'm finding is a lot of people from outside the state who are, you know, Texas curious. Like, uh, you know, it's a big state. Yeah. People, it's in the news a lot. People are like, oh, I want to go check this thing out. Uh, but yeah, people are curious to come. They're like, I want to see a, a little bit, bit of Texas. And I like what you said about the, uh, you know, your friends that were signing up. So who were your friends that, that were in the race? Randy Wendell was signed up. A couple that didn't make I it no, were Zach see, McCool and uh, Jen Wolner. Jacob Luce was there. Zeno was there. And Steph Hall, I'd met her briefly at 
uh, high country the prior year and we were yeah. connected through Instagram. So, so yeah, a lot of names and faces I recognize and just thought, Oh, I'll go hang out. It's a good crew. We get mm-hmm. a gr- good crew that shows yeah. up. It's really awesome. Yeah. I would definitely go back. I think I definitely want to do the lowdown, the camping version, the mm-hmm. overnighter next year. I think that'd be a really fun way to connect with new folks. And now that you have the central thing going. Yeah. 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 That one's coming up this, this year, October. But October is a busy month, I guess. So yeah, we'll see. I think I'm going to be on a leaf peeping tour in October. That's the plan to go to the East Coast and take the van. Hopefully, my parents can go too and take their own vehicle, and we can like caravan and check out the leaves as they turn. Oh, that's, that's the so plan. Cool. So yeah, next October, you'll see me Central Texas Showdown. Oh yeah. oh yeah, and then the West Texas Showdown. See, that's the one you really need to get into because I was telling you yesterday you have to ride Big Bend. Yeah. So uh, with the Showdown series you're going to have to qualify for Big Bend by doing either East or Central Texas. So you're, you'll, you can I'm qualify, yes. uh, but I think that one's going to, and that, will, that one will be in 2020. Well, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't want to say, because I might actually do it next year, but yeah. it might be 2025. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. Big Bend sounds amazing. Yeah, Big Bend's going to be dope. It's going to be fun. But I'm totally fine with what you said about... Um, I I want it, East Texas Showdown. Like Showdown is maybe an aggressive name for what it actually is. Bikes or Death is probably an aggressive name <laughs> for what it actually is. You know, I just like to trick people into thinking. If I don't do this episode, I die. Yeah, oh, it's, I mean, it sounds like super intense, but um, it's all pretty uh, pretty low key. But I mean, you know, to call bikepacking low key is probably not uh, correct. But like, it can be. Yeah, it really is whatever you make out Depends of it. Depends on what, what level you're at. Like yeah. for some people, 170 miles is a huge, yeah. you know, thing. It's not low key. Um, but I want it to be approachable. Like I want yeah. it to be. And and the other thing is we are limited in Texas by public lands. We're limited by infrastructure. We're limited by um, there's too much population in areas, so it's not safe. Um, so like we are, you know, people have asked me, like, why don't I make the races longer? Um, well, part of it is I'm just looking for good roads that are safe and worth seeing and yep. all these things and have resupply and all that kind of stuff. So some of it is just out of necessity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I want yeah, I want people to think that it's doable. I want people to come out and uh, it's doable. Hopefully it's fun. And we're going to have a party afterwards, Yeah, you know, we're all going to hang out and it's going to be a good time, yep. you know, and that's, that's the fun part, I think. Oh, hundred percent. I wanted to ask you this question. Okay. I saved this for the podcast. I almost forgot about it. But the, the thing that I try to do with the East Texas showdown is, um, I feel like a lot of bike pack races into an empty parking lot or, you know, a border crossing. Um, and what I felt like was missing was really trying to bring the community into it, Mm -hmm. um, both before with camping at the bullet, you know, beforehand with camping afterwards, with having, um, a party at the end to kind of celebrate everything. Is is that common in any other races? No, I actually think so for most of the races I've done, you start with people and there's, there's not like a party atmosphere around it. A lot of them, you might be getting dropped off at the starting point. Mm-hmm. Like say Tour Divide, for example, the guy I was dating at the time dropped me off at the border. And it was just us that were racing and the 
clock started and we just took off. And then ending, there was no one there. You know, I, I pulled in to Banff, rainy night, by myself, very anticlimactic. I'm just kind of like, well, here's the end. And I went to the Y and got a room. And a lot of the races I've done, it's it's like that. You just kind of like end and you make sure your dot bounces and then you just head out to wherever you're going, either by yourself or someone's picking you up. So the first event that I did where it seemed like there was a big community around it was the Arkansas High Country. Yeah. People were so excited, like townsfolk and stuff and like going through the towns and stuff, people knew what was going on and they would like come out and cheer for you and stuff. And then at the end, there's all sorts of people there and and that's really cool. So East Texas Showdown is the first one I've done where it's like people are kind of camped at the the terminus and they're is like a bigger opportunity to spend more time with people and get food and swap stories afterward and stuff. So I really like that aspect of it. I think it's, there've got to be other races that are like that, but for me, it's, it's the only one I've done where it's like really like that. And then like doom, we can car camp Mm -hmm. where it starts and ends. But since I did the yo-yo, I again, finished by myself and there's no one there. So I imagine that one would also be similar in that you're finishing with some people and there's story swapping and stuff, but yeah. I like I that. I love that. It's, um, you know, it's just, I think, I, I think I need to credit the gravel community for, that's where I stole the idea from. Yeah. It was, it was just like, man, um, for, I, I went and did some gravel races, right? And I remember telling the people that I was riding with, I, I was riding, I was not racing. So, yeah. but it was a race. And uh, I remember telling him like, dude, what are we doing? Why are all these people going so fast? This is beautiful. We need to slow down. We need to camp. We need, like <laughs> everybody stop, you know? Uh, and it, it, so, you know, I love, I love gravel. I think, you know, it's it's great, but um, I'm always like, why are y'all going so fast? You know? <laughs> Stop and um, smell the roses. And so that, then I was like, man, let's just do a gravel atmosphere, kind of try to create that atmosphere. And that's also why why the showdown is slower or, or, or shorter is it's intended so that everybody can be done by the the hoedown at mm-hmm. the end so i don't if they're too long then we can't all get back and then it can't be a weekend a weekend thing yeah. which is another thing because i wanted to to, to to design it so that stay-at-home moms or dads or families or you know people who work a lot or whatever mm-hmm. um can can do it you know so yeah you know not everybody can take a, a week or two or a month off of work so definitely that was like another another thing and yeah. And for people who want something longer, there are longer things out there. I've actually seen that question come out a, a lot from directors on, say, fa- their Facebook page, mm. like questioning like the people who are going to do the race or who want to but aren't for some reason. They're like, what can I do distance-wise to like, pull more people in? And what can I do terrain-wise? And to me, it's like design the race you want to design. And people will either be into it and do it, or they're going to go find something else that they're more into. Yeah. And if you're trying to cater to everybody, you're catering to, to no one. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like pleasing people. Like you can't please everyone. It's true. Just do what you want to do, and the folks that are into it are going to come do it. Yeah. No, that's so true. Um, I mentioned this on the last episode that came out. Mm-hmm. I was saying that um, that's the cool thing about bike packing is that it is unsanctioned, and instead of trying to you know, emulate what other people are doing. We need to lean more into making each event its own thing. You know, that's kind of the cool thing is like, I don't really, 
I want to make sure I'm running a good event and I don't want to completely, I don't know. I don't want to run a weird event, but I want to make it our own thing. Like yeah. I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. I want to have our own twist on it. Want, I want it to be its own thing. I want our rules to be our own rules. I want it to be its own experience. And I, I hope other people and race directors uh, embrace that. And, and I mean, Tim Tate and uh, Ed did a great job with UME. I mean, I love some of the traditions that Andrew Honor Ma has around doom with the gremlin so bells, cool. you yeah. know, and yeah, let's do more of that. Do, do your own thing and make it fun, make it cool. Yeah. Uh, I always say that one of my favorite things about bikepacking is how I think we we tend to not only like are open to diversity, but are but like kind of celebrated in that, you know, you show up to a gravel race on the bike that you built that's like cool and somebody else bought one for $15,000. I don't know. It's all, you yeah. know, probably not 15000 but you know, like everybody shows up on their own thing with their own custom bags, with their own cool stuff. And it's like, oh, you did that. Oh, you did that. Yeah. That's cool. And it should be the same way with events. It's like, oh, wow, that's a cool spin. And that's cool, you know, and I think that's kind of the fun part about it is we yeah. don't have all these rules. Yep. And then people, even the whole group of people going to one event are going to treat it differently. Like with Showdown, there are people like me who are out there like, I'm going to go as fast and hard as I can, but um, not like super race mode and stuff. And then you've got people out there like um, Steph Hall and Hannah Simon who are just like hauling ass. And yeah, so it's like you can approach the race in whatever way you want as well. And like yeah. you said, with whatever, whatever gear you want, whatever style of bike you want. Yeah, exactly. All that. And make and, it your own. And that's the other thing that we try to do with the showdown is is celebrate. And this is something I want to continue to do, but to do better at is celebrating just like different ways of riding. Like we've done, you know, the best photography on course uh, competition mm. before. We've done the best dress competition. We've done the, you know, good energy award, the pro slow award. The, so we, you know, it's like just fun things. Yeah. Just like, let's just recognize people for fun shit, you know, and then also recognize the people that go fast and also recognize the person that comes in last, yeah. you know. I love those extra spins. Like, I don't remember his name, but the gentleman who got the best energy, I've been following him on Instagram and he does his videos every day for his riding bike for 365 days. Yeah. And Kyle, so it's like Kyle Aldridge. Yes, Kyle. So like because of you you doing that, giving out that little award, now I get to see this person's like positive energy every day while they're out cruising their bikes. So I think uh, it's a really neat way to that's a great highlight different people and how they approach cycling and what cycling means to them in their lives. Yeah. And it just like passes that positivity on to everybody else. Yeah. The other fun thing that I did this year I don't want to, I, I don't know. I actually had this idea on stage and I act, I think it's a brilliant idea and I would like to maybe see more of it, which is why I'm mentioning it. Um, but I don't know if you noticed, but like for the, for the fastest people, I brought up all the winners in every category, everybody on stage at one time, instead of doing men's, women's, non-binary, you know, mm -hmm. I did everybody on stage all at one time. And um, I thought that was kind of cool yeah. instead of like, I don't know, it's like, yeah, here we are as a group. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it was fun. What was your, so what was your takeaway? What was your experience? What was your riding experience? What did you think about the route, the terrain, the scenery, the people? Like, what was your experience out there? The terrain was awesome. I hadn't ridden through that part of Texas before, so it was just really cool to see the scenery and what it was like. It was actually um, the first bikepacking 
I'd done in several months. So it was a it was a good refresher on check your gear before you leave. Like I didn't. <laughs> so I figured, all right, I'm out there. It's just a two nighter. Um, I want to pack lighter than I normally pack. And so I I decided like. I've, I've definitely played around over the years with sleep systems. Like the first year I did the tour divide, I didn't use a sleep mat. I just slept on the ground in my sleeping bag, in my bivy. Whoa. And as I've aged, I've been like, oh, maybe a little bit of comfort and insulation would be nice. Yeah, warmth, a little warm. And so I've, depending on the race, I might not take stuff. Like same with Utah Mixed Epic. I think both years, I didn't even take my sleeping pad because I figured the type of terrain I'm going through I can easily find a place to lay down and sleep where it's going to be moderately comfortable. There's sand, whatever. And so the same thing for Texas. I was like, all right, it's Texas. I kind of scoped out like 10 miles of the route a few days before up by Jacksonville. And I was like, I bet I could get away with no sleeping pad sleeping out here for two nights. So I didn't take the sleeping pad. Well, then I was like, all right, I've got my bivy. Do I really need this sleeping bag? You know, is it going to be that cold? And I kind of, having wintered in Wisconsin this year for the first time in like 20 years, I thought I'm kind of acclimated to the cold. It's just two nights. I'll go out there, no sleeping bag either, and just be fine. Oh my God, I froze my ass off. So the first night I pull up to this church at, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning and I buried myself into a little crevice behind the church in this little strip of grass right between the church and an, an air conditioner. Cause I thought, all right, this is a good wind block. It's as warm as it's gonna get. And so I woke up an hour and 15 minutes later, just shaking violently with cold. And so uh -huh. I was like, all right, time to get up and ride. And like, as I was riding, I was fine. Like I was warm from moving. But then the sleep monster hits again, cause the sun's not up yet. So I found this little abandoned utility shack at an intersection and the door was like jammed shut with dirt and stuff. So I like dug it out real quick and I got in there and it was just a cement slab with like mud dauber nests all over the wall and stuff. So I rolled the bike in, I lay down in the cement slab and I couldn't even fall asleep. It was so cold. So I just laid there and shaked for like another 45 minutes until the sun came up and I was like, all right, sun's up. I know I've got my second wind. I'm good to go. And just rode, rode, rode. But when I hit a Berkshire Brothers in Great, is it Great Land? Uh, yeah, Grapeland. Yeah, Grapeland. So I got to Grapeland and there was this Berkshire Brothers and they had this really nice Sherpa blanket for clearance for 13 bucks. So I snagged that up real quick. <laughs> and since I didn't have anything in my seat bag, since I was dumb and didn't pack anything, <laughs> I was able to jam that blanket in there. And then I was heading out of town and I saw Dollar General off to my right. So I stopped there and for $2.17, I got a long sleeve shirt. <laughs> so, cause all I had as far as clothes too was my t-shirt sleeves torn off and my windbreaker, my yeah. rain jacket. So, so now I had a blanket and a long sleeve shirt. And so the, the next night I slept for almost three hours that night and um, came back to the bullet, jumped all my shit and then did the death loop. But so, so yeah, it was, it was a good experience as far as like, <laughs> let's be realistic, Lindsay. <laughs> Even if it's just two nights out there, what do you need to be comfortable? Because I hate being cold. So I just need to... <laughs> You know, and how much does a sleeping bag weigh? Everything I what? have is down. It doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't take up any space. Yeah. Just throw it in there. Why did Why did you not take anything? I don't know. Because I hadn't <laughs> bikepacked in so many months. And I was like, dude, I'm going to ultralight this thing and just like blast through these couple nights. And yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really good prep for Doom because then Doom comes along and I was like, all right, pack it all. You got all your warm gear. <laughs> yeah. How tough are you? I'd say pretty damn tough. I think so. Yeah. 
Honestly, I mean... You don't, you don't fucking quit, do you? No. I think my perspective is a bit whacked because I've done so many of these. Um, I've put myself through so many different experiences and stuff. Like when I first started doing these races and I would finish, people would be like, I cannot believe you did that. And I would just be like, well, I really didn't do anything. All I did was ride my bike every day for a few days. Like anybody can do that. And I do believe that anyone with a moderate amount of physical fitness and with you know, of course, proper gear. And by proper gear, it doesn't even have to be a fancy bike. I did my first tour divide on a $500 hard rock. I made it the whole way, same drivetrain and everything. A sport or a regular? Just a regular. Okay, I yeah. just got a sport, a 1995 sport. Oh, fine. I just got it like three days nice. ago, four days. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so if you have you have gear, you have a moderate, you know, good amount of fitness, you've been riding bike, you know, you, you're going to feel good on it for a couple of days. And then really, except for a couple of routes um, excluded, it's mostly mental. Like most routes, it's like you just need to have the capacity to get through certain situations. And that's, so that's what it comes down to. So I think it's having that mental toughness. And I think I'm good there. Like yeah. I, when something bad happens, I think, I, I never think of, oh, now it's time to quit. It's like, okay, shit, what do I need to do to get myself out of this situation and down the road? And I think that's really what it takes. Like I was listening to your East Texas showdown panel that you had at Cycle East. Mm -hmm. And Hannah Simon had brought up a story of her first time. I think it was her first year out there where yeah. like her brake pads failed and she had flip-flops on or something, yeah. some sandals, <laughs> something like that. And it, But instead of quitting, it was like, all right, I have to use my feet as brakes and I can't ride at night because I think there was something there too. With, yeah, I think yeah. that was Hannah actually, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hannah. I oh, think. did I say the yeah. wrong name? Yeah. I think you said Stephanie. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was Hannah Simon. And... I, I think that is the key component to succeeding at stuff like this is just having that mental capacity to deal with shit hitting the fan and then sit and figure out what do I need to do to move beyond this versus, oh, my brake pads are failing. I guess that means I'm done. Yeah. And if that's what a person does, that's cool too. Like we all do what we you know want. But I so many people I've talked to that regret dropping over simple things that... When you're sleep deprived, when you miss people, when you're out there on your own, it's so easy to make a snap decision to just be like, I'm out. And then later on, you're like, why did I do that? That was my vacation. Yeah. But I also think that, you know, that's a learning experience and those people will remember that feeling that they had. And the next time they do something, yep. maybe they won't drop out, you know? And yeah. so we're all on a, on a path and. Oh, that totally. I, that was me. My first, the first tour divide that I dropped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I, you, you're I like immediately got in the car and I was like, scheming what I need to do, <laughs> what I, what I need to do different the next year, but was already regretting it as I was driving back to Phoenix. So, yeah. Yeah. So that actually is a perfect lead into my next question, which is, uh, is your toughness, um, and it sounds like mostly it's it's a lot of mental toughness. Obviously, you have physical toughness to be able to do these things as well. But does that is that something that you've had? Is that something you've learned and developed over time? I think it's certainly developed over time, but I think it does stem from when I was young. I think it's more a positive outlook than mental toughness per se, and just a desire to be self sufficient. So growing up, my my dad was a teacher, coach, driver's ed instructor. So he was like out of the next town over for work and stuff. And then my mom was an artist and she worked from home. So she had a shop next to the house and stuff. And I remember a lot of when we were kids, like we would be running around and stuff or we'd get in a little scuffle and then we'd like race out to the shop to like try and beat one another out there to be like, mom, you know, Lindsay did this or Ryan did that or whatever. 
And a lot of times, like, if there wasn't blood involved, she would just kind of be like, well, figure it out. Yeah. And because, you know, she's trying to work and stuff too. And so I think, like, from a young age, we were taught to, like, figure things out and stuff. And I think I also had a desire to, like, I remember my mom telling me when I was young, I used to be very stubborn and I'd want to do things myself. Like, I'd say, I'll do it myself. One time she said that she, I think one of my parents took a glass of water back to my bedroom for me. And I like stormed out of the bedroom, slammed the glass of water back on like the living room table. And I was like, I said, I'd do it myself <laughs> and then took it back. So apparently I've always had this desire to be self-sufficient. You're a feminist from a young degree. age. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think um, in then in trying to figure things out from a young age, I think there was a lesson that I'm only recognizing now as far as acknowledging what's not working and then emphasizing the stuff that is working, like what's positive, like what's going to get me out of the situation. Let's put the emphasis on that while recognizing what doesn't work. So yeah, I think just in partially how I was raised and where I was raised being in kind of a rural area with, you know, we were kids just out doing our thing in the woods in an era where people weren't constantly over our shoulders, worried that we we're going to hurt ourselves. Yeah. I, was, I was lucky enough to be raised in that era and in that location where I had a desire to and was able to be more self-sufficient. Yeah, I feel a, a, a strong similarity to the way you were raised, what you just described. I mean, you and I are similar age. My mom was the same way. She's like, if there's not a broken bone or blood, don't bother me. Don't come inside. <laughs> don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Go. Sort yourselves. Yeah, fix it. So I can I can definitely relate to that. Okay, so let's let's put this, let's do a little... So let's put this into practice, what you just said. So you're um, you're on the East Texas Showdown. You're in this like weird utility closet with mud daubers all around you, and you're shivering to death or to a miserable degree. Violently. Was it, was it positivity that got you out of that? Or was it stubbornness? Was it toughness? Like what, what? kept you going then. I think there was just Biden time. So I so in that situation, I don't think there was anything at play as far as like channeling positivity or, you know, stubbornness <laughs> or anything. It was just like this is just part of the experience. Like this is just something that happens. So I just gotta bide my time. The sun will be up soon and then I can be on my way. So there wasn't much um thought so or digging deep. That's yeah, just that's raw just toughness. toughness. That's yeah. just a little grit. Yeah, I think this that's is just, like grit and bear it, really. Yeah, right? exactly. That's yeah. exactly what it is. I actually the first year that I did the tour divide, it took me 30 days and it rained 18 of those days. And it was just a rainy year. And I don't mean like, oh, it's sprinkled a little bit here and there. Like it rained hard enough where I actually threw on rain gear because I was cold mm. and 18 days. So then it, it just became after a few days, oh, here's that part of the day where I throw my rain gear on again, or here's that part of the day where the lightning rolls through and I've got to duck and cover for a few minutes and let the storm roll by. So I think I've just become used to, there are, the, it's, the weather is not always going to be nice. The road conditions are definitely not always going to be nice. You're going to have bad interactions occasionally with a car, and that's just part of it. So shaking violently, like in that shed, waiting for the sun to come up, I was like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be over in about 30 <laughs> minutes, in about 15 minutes, you know, just like yeah. watching that clock, waiting for the sun to come up. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it maybe speaks to there isn't one thing, right, that's going to get you through these experiences, these events. It is you're going to use your entire emotional tool shed, mm-hmm. everything. Um, and, and sometimes it's going to go splendidly and it's going to be a perfect trip, right? And you're going to be on a dopamine high. But other times you're going to have to dip into your whole bag of tricks to, yeah. to get through it, huh? Yeah. Well, and I sometimes don't even realize how, I'm not going to say down, but just like, uh, there will be a section that I feel like I'm just kind of like suffering through and stuff, but then I'll get to the top of this mountain and I haven't seen anyone for, you know, like the entire day. And all of a sudden these guys come by on quads and they they park at the top and then like, they're like, oh my God, you're my hero. And they like cheer and stuff. And like, <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, your entire mood changes and it's just amazing. It's like, wow, I was actually kind of down in the dumps and didn't even realize it, but it just takes that one little interaction with a person who's like, you're doing something amazing. And the water on the uh, American trail race. Yeah. The water. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness for that guy. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had water to get through, but man, it would have been a slog. All right. Let's talk about Doom. I mean, that yo-yo is... Doom, Doom, Doom. <laughs> Doom I freaking love Doom. I love Doom. It's such a cool event. Like, I would love to, if I'm around next year um, during that time where he's yeah. having it, I would love to volunteer to, like, check people in just so I can be there at the start. Like, what a cool experience to see, the, like, the gremlin bells and just the energy and yeah. people leaving. He had this thing playing over the speakerphone. I don't even know what it was, but it was this creepy-ass noise uh. that happened intermittently. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but it was just, like, created this whole, like, mood and we're all getting ready to start. And I'm like, what is going on? He's wearing his scream mask. Yeah. And bunny ears. And bunny ears, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. I forgot it was Easter until yeah. I got to a, a little town... Um, this church and all these kids were out there for their Easter Sunday and they're like, do you need water? Do you want Easter dinner? Like they, they were so sweet. They <laughs> oh. brought me water. I didn't take the dinner because I was like, I'll be here forever. But yeah. yeah. So Doom, super, super cool experience. Great route. Absolutely. It's like brutal climbs on repeat <laughs> would be how I describe that one. Okay, so let's stack. Uh, I asked the last guest. So my last episode was with Eric House and we he did the East Texas Showdown and then he did Doom. Um, so a lot, we talked about a lot of the same stuff. But um, how how hard was Doom? Like we talked about uh, Utah Mixed Ed- mm-hmm. Epic and uh, the American Trail Race. Like how hard is Doom? Doom is, is close up there with Utah Mixed Epic. It's just a different type of difficulty. And so the train itself is rideable. The only thing that determines whether or not you're on your bike is your gearing when it gets to the hills and how steep they are. So it was difficult in that there are so many hills that are so steep that a person's walking a lot. So shoes matter. I had some Adidas 510s that are just kind of like mountain bike tennis shoes, basically. So I was comfortable the whole time as far as the walking goes. And it, yeah, it can get long as far as the walks. So I guess that's like the, the toughest part. Especially, okay, especially single speed or is everybody walking? So is this a good single speed Everybody, course? Everybody's going to be walking. I mean, I don't know how uh, Jeff who won it, I don't know how much he actually walked. I think yeah. I do remember him commenting on Instagram or something that even he walked a bit. Like I don't... I've I wonder never what been, his gearing was, I you know? No, no clue. I mean, I love climbing. Climbing is my favorite part of riding. But even if I'd been geared, I would have been walking almost as much as I walked single right. speed. So they're going in reverse. I feel like the the course is set up that 
uh, clockwise, the regular way, you're, you have more climbs that are steeper and you have more gradual descents. There are a couple exceptions, but I think that's the trend. So when I turned around and went backwards, I was able to stay on the bike longer on the climbs. And I think I would have been able to complete a lot more of those climbs fully on the bike had I been geared. So, so yeah, that, that would be the difference there. But there also the water crossings. That part made it tough because I hit a lot of those water crossings at night. Mm. So it's like already chilly out and I'm not going to get my socks and shoes wet. So I'm either going barefoot or I had some water socks I took for some of the bigger crossings. But how does that change based on single speed and geared? Oh, that doesn't. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm just saying as far as toughness of the course goes. Oh, the toughness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Single speed versus geared. It's... For me, it would have been the same. Basically. I think I would single speed it just because I'd be like, I could say I did, and it would have been the same yeah. if I was on a geared bike or a single speed. But it just makes you sound cooler. Exactly. Actually, going, I don't know. I don't want to take anything against single speeders. <laughs> going it's, clockwise, I, I would say single speed it. Counterclockwise, yeah, geared because I, I think a person could could clear more yeah. climbs. Geared. I was exaggerating. People, everybody, calm down. Single speed's harder. So, I'm talking you think to the so? audience. Uh, I think it's different. Yeah, it's just different. It's just I don't know different. that it's harder. That, that's a good. That's a good point. I mean, yeah. I think to me, to me, it's been. I've enjoyed it more. It's kind of kept me doing these types of races because I was like, man, I'm going to stop doing these races and start doing like uh, paddle trips and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like just because I was getting kind of bored. And then I did Utah Mixed Epic, and I was like, all right, here's the challenge that kind of sucked me back in. And then single speeding high country, doing something single speed sucked me back in. Yeah. So it's just a different type of riding. It's it's definitely more relaxed for me. I experience more of what's around me because uh, if I can't pedal, I'm just yeah. chill, just either walking or just gliding and looking around. And It's such a good point. It's not harder. It's different. Yeah. It is just a different experience yep. and it forces you to slow down and it forces you to walk. Yeah. Um, and it just, it, it takes away the pressure of feeling like you have to, you're like, if you have gears and yep. you're walking a hill that you have the gears to climb, then you're like, well, fuck, I should be, you know, yeah, why am this. I, so, why am I walking? <laughs> when I single speed, you're like, do, 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 do. Yeah, yep, totally. <laughs> it's like, what else am I going to do? Yeah. And so, no, in many ways, uh, mentally, uh, physically, you're working different muscle groups. Uh, so you're sharing the load there. Mm-hmm. Your ass gets down. to break a lot. Yeah, your ass. There's, yeah, in many ways, it isn't that. Uh, yeah. Some people have told me not to uh, highlight that too much on the podcast because they don't want their egos to be shattered because there oh. is this <laughs> ego thing with seagull speed. Really? I haven't come I, across. In jest, in yeah. jest, but a lot of people have I said, like, hey, 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 don't is. tell people. <laughs> huh? Like, ego. Like, to me, I'm, um, to me, it's not an ego thing. I'm just a lazy shifter. Because, like you said, <laughs> there's like less decision making. Yeah. And you just get to chill. But yeah, maybe there is. I, I'm i not ingrained enough in the single speed community to know if anyone's like actually feels oh, yeah. ego about there's it. Identity, I seen it. There's identities there? like attached to single yeah. speed. For sure. I'm not saying all of them. Yeah. But oh, yeah, like there's definitely people whose egos and their identities are attached in some degree yeah. to being a single speeder. And, and that's cool. That's cool. I like That's it. The, yeah, we all have different things that I have feed egos. into our identities. I have egos about all, I have five egos. Yeah? I don't know. <laughs> At least five. <laughs> tell us your egos. I No, you tell me. This is my podcast. I'll be asking the questions. Thank you very much. <laughs> Identity is actually an interesting topic though when it comes to cycling. Because I've definitely had, had people ask before like, 
Oh, okay. So I spent most of this last winter since I was in Wisconsin, Nordic skiing. And I had like one girlfriend was like, man, I'm so sorry you haven't been able to be on the bike. And I was like, oh, you know, don't be sorry. Like I, I do so much more than bike. And to me, cycling's never actually been like this big part of my identity. I think yeah. it's cool to go out and do these events and stuff. But if, if something happened where I, I just couldn't bike moving forward, there are so many other things that I enjoy doing right. that, yeah, it'd be disappointing, but I wouldn't feel like I'd lost some part of my identity or something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important. And it's something I highlight periodically on the podcast is that the driving motivator for me, and I think a lot of people that do this, is the the seeing, um, the experiencing the world in a different modality, the getting away from screens and work and all. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's you want the experience. You're there for the adventure, and I I love hiking. I love um, river trips. I know you're a big river trip person. Um, I'm working on planning one for this summer. You know, what I mean, like I I love uh, bike pack rafting. Like there's so much stuff that's fun to do. And I, you know, on this podcast, we, the modality we discuss is bikes. That's the one we talk about uh, the most, but I think a lot of us just appreciate the outdoors and getting to experience it. And that's the real driving. So, yeah. So you've done the, the bike pack rafting? Yeah. Oh, I've never tried that. That looks like an intensely fun time. It is so wonderful. Um, I have a bike pack rafting route in Big Bend, actually. That's the one I told you where I saw the bighorn sheep on, cool. uh, it was Mariscal Canyon. It was really cool. So check this out. One year, we do the, my birthday's in February and my buddy's uh, birthday's close there. And we do the Big Bend birthday bash weekend. And uh, we do it every year in like February. And um, one year we did a bike packing trip with a hike up to the top of Mariscal Canyon, which is like, I don't remember how many feet, looking down to the Rio Grande. And then the next year we did a bike packing trip and we floated the Mariscal Canyon through on the Rio Grande. Uh, and then I've done one in Arkansas on the Buffalo. Oh, uh, was it the Buffalo? Anyway, I don't remember. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, but it's it's fun. That's fun. And it's not as hard as, like, I'm not a super great paddler. I'm okay. You know, I'm I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. I wonder about the weight <laughs> for me as far as carrying the raft. Yeah, so that's the thing that's surprising. Oh, on the bike? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's not that bad. I, it's I, not super heavy? Uh, the, the pack raft will go all on the front roll. And you put the paddles and everything right oh, there. Oh, that's cool. And so then what I do, the things that I put typically in my front roll, I transition to fork mounts on either side. Ah. I don't typically utilize that on most trips, yeah. but for this I do. And that's that's the adjustment that I make. And so it's totally doable. A little heavier. It's like probably eight to 10 more pounds, you know. But That sounds like such a blast. I just envisioned myself going through a canyon and coming out and finding a nice sandy beach to camp on for the night making a big fire. Yes. That's what I love about river trips is it is at least in Texas, especially because our lack of public lands, it is one time in Texas where you can truly get um, away from everything. Like you can, you know, the Brazos river that, that goes by my house, um, you can float that for days and probably not see anyone or, you know, just cars passing on a bridge, but it's a true, you know, wilderness experience. And you just, yeah, there's, oh, there's a sandbar. Let's camp there. And you just, what a treat. Camp. Yeah. It's wonderful. I love river trips, but yeah, man, this is, that's the thing is like, 
uh, bikes are my favorite modality, but, um, Man, it's, I enjoy it all. Yeah, there's so much to do to yeah. experience the wilderness around yeah. us. So I, th- I, I don't know. I, be, I bet a lot of people agree with you. Yeah. Um, I, remind me, you have, um, you're doing the Doom Yo-Yo as part of like a, a, a something that you created. created for, you created something. It's my, my like fun three, summer challenge. It's yeah, so what is this? <laughs> The Arkansas Single Speed Yo-Yo Triple Crown Extravaganza. Oh, the Yo-Yo. Okay, let's say that again slow. Yo-Yo Triple Crown. Single Speed Yo-Yo Triple Crown Extravaganza. Extravaganza. So I'd wanted to yo-yo the high country because I feel like it takes me a solid week before I really have extracted myself from normal daily life and I'm starting to appreciate the woods, the sounds of nature, not being on a screen, stuff like that. And when I did the high country a couple years back, it took me seven days, 16 hours. So like when I was finishing, I was like, man, I was just feeling like I I was like out there, you know, experiencing things. And that course is also super rideable train wise. The, the only big challenge is just hills, which, yeah. you know, yay, walk my bike. So I thought that would be a really good one to yo-yo. So I had a plan to yo-yo that this year as an ITT since I can't make the Grand Apart. And I also had, since I'd built that frame with things like um, the Washita Triple Crown and Olympic 420 and Doom in mind, I was like, well, I know I want to ride this single speed on the OTC as well. And I'm signed up for Doom. So I was like, I'll just yo-yo all three of them and make my own personal Arkansas Triple Crown challenge. <laughs> and that's about as deep as the thought went. So I'm creating that little event for myself. So, so yeah, so I did Doom with the Grand Part. I'm going to do the OTC next month. I think I have myself starting on the 19th. And then I believe it's June 16th or so that I'm going to start my yo-yo of the high country. Ooh, June. Yeah, June. I want to do it when it's warm out. Oh, I you like, want yes, the heat. I like to ride in the heat. I would much rather ride in the heat than the cold. I love the idea of longer days. And I love taking less gear so I don't have to take my super heavy sleeping bag because I, I get cold so easily. So it's like if I can take a lighter bag and not have all my layers and stuff. And I also like to, when it rains, I like it to be so warm out that I don't even need to throw on a rain jacket unless mm. it's just downright pouring. Yeah. I like to just ride in the rain and the sun and the heat. And, yeah. So, so June will be good. What if it doesn't rain and it's death heat? Oh, that's all right. I've been there. Like I, I, I figure I'll just deal with whatever, whatever yeah. I get. What What do you do to um, uh, to deal with the heat? Like, are you taking electrolytes? Are you making sure you drink water? Or do you just deal with the heat better than more, most people? I think I've been acclimated from spending so many years in Phoenix and Albuquerque, which I'm not so acclimated anymore. But I, I take a lot of magnesium and calcium and vitamin D. And then I've, I just have like a random thing of like, say, scratch and sport legs or something. I'll just throw whatever in there. Amino acids help keep my legs from feeling dead and stuff. But I feel like they also help more when, I, when I'm riding in the heat. I don't know if that's just yeah. mental or what, but hmm. I think the magnesium is key. I went through a period where every time I rode, I had intense leg cramps, like debilitating, can't walk, just frozen in the road type of stuff. And I started taking magnesium and it went away instantly and it's never come back. Wow. So. How many miles total is this yo-yo, the extravaganza in total? Do you mm. know? Have you done the math? I haven't done the math. Randy Windle did the math for me and put it on Instagram, but I forget what it is. So let's just round up okay. Doom to 800. 
Yeah. High country will be at over 2,000, but let's just say 2,000. So and pro- OTC is 180-ish each direction. So I bet you're at 360 plus 8 plus 2. So yeah, like 3,200. 200-ish, yeah. So this yo-yo extravaganza... <laughs> it's still like less miles than the longest route I've ever ridden. Cause I'll have people like when I've back to back things, like one year I did the Utah mixed epic and then I went and did high country shortly after. And people were like, that's so crazy. But I'm like, actually it doesn't feel like it is at all because I've, yeah. I've done 5,000 plus it's miles, so hundred miles a day, over hundred miles a day average You're blow- in one go. So yeah. I get breaks in between each one here. You're blowing your cover, man. I was I was all ready to be impressed. Like no, you're first person to do the Doom nope. yo-yo. Like nope. first, nobody could complete the Doom. And then Brett was a Brett, the first one Brett that did it. Uh, completed in the winter, it. Like in the winter, like a winter on a single speed, right? So Brett was the first person. And then uh, and now people are just yo-yoing it like no no yeah, problem, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a really weird experience because I've either ITT'd her out or done a race. So I'm either starting and ending with knowing that there are other people on the course, at least, even if I don't see them. Yeah. I know there are people out there, or I'm alone from the start and I end alone. This one, I start with everybody. I'm leapfrogging with friends and like having a really good time. And then um, at when I finished the first lap, I had s- several friends there to like like share the moment and say hi. And it was like really cool experience and stuff. And then I went back out and it was just like, I'm alone. I'm alone. So it was very bizarre to have those two different sensations in the same event. What was it like? It was, well, I definitely quickly entered chill mode. Like I got back out there. I did two of the toughest climbs where at the start, like the steeper hike of bikes heading back out. And then I slept for eight hours or six hours. And then I got up and just started cruising and stuff. I definitely wasn't like driven to, you know, sleep deprive myself as much, I guess. I still rode about the same speed because I'm always just kind of, you know, going at a steady pace, but... It was definitely more chill. And I feel like the, the very last day, I I woke up and I just felt like a million bucks. Like my body felt like the best it had felt the whole time. My legs were just like limber and I was just like flying. I finally got doomed on. It poured. I had three big storms roll through on the second to last climb, two with hail, all three with lightning. Oh, God. Oh. So I had to get off a couple of times. It was, and it was all on the same climb. And the last storm rolled through as I hit the ridge line. So I was like, oh my God, there's so much less tree cover. There was lightning. I waited for it to pass. And, but it was so windy. I was, you know, when you like ride and you're like leaning way into the crosswind and stuff. Oh, and you're yeah. like, if this wind stops, I'm toppling over. <laughs> and it was like sheeting rain sideways on me. I was still like heading toward the ditch. And I just, I, I could see a break in the clouds toward the end of this ridge line, and I just hammered. I was just like, just go, 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 go. I also didn't want to be stuck in the rain after dark because then I knew it would be cold. Like, as it was, I didn't need to throw on my rain jacket because it, it had been hot for two days. It was like in the 80s, so. Jesus. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely a, an interesting experience, like ending solo after having been out there for so many days with other people. Is there any reason why you didn't uh, just camp at the... Uh, at the cafe, the OR general store, like when you finished your first loop? Because it sounds like well, you, you went riding. You said you, I think yeah, you rode I two rode more a, hours and slept for eight hours. Yeah, I did two climbs. I don't even know how many hours it was. Oh, it probably climbs. was only a couple of hours. Um, I wanted to knock those climbs out. I just wanted to be back out there. I also would rather camp in the woods and like feel like I'm still in it than mm-hmm. have slept in the van. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
has anybody else uh, expressed an interest in joining you on the extravaganza? Not yet, but there's <laughs> got to be someone. And honestly, if anyone wants to do this yo-yo extravaganza next year, it's one one calendar year, do all three of these, or even this yeah. year, there's still time, folks. Come on out. Uh, since I'm in the van and mobile, if I am not, like, say, doing a field job for work or something, I would love to meet people at, like, the start and finish. Oh. And, like, bring them treats and, like, That's see them cool. off, take some photos. Yeah. Bring them food and so you're drinks hoping at the to, end. You're hoping to create a little, a little, I don't know, a, a series, I guess. That would be you, super cool. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I think it's a great It'd idea. Be fun. What has uh, Andrew said about it? Oh, he thought it was super cool. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I mean, like, like you said, he, he's created such an awesome atmosphere around Doom. And then when he's been organizing High Country the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's just pumped to like bring more attention to the routes and stuff and appreciation for him. And yeah. he did such an awesome job with the doom route. Like it's, it's a, it's a mental beat down those climbs. Cause it's just nonstop. Like there's no break. You just, you climb and you descend. Yeah. A <laughs> little bit of ridge riding where you're like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, this damn weird. it. Where's this water crossing when it's 25 degrees out? Okay, yeah. I got a good question for you. Sure. I just thought of this. Is it more beautiful than hard or more hard than beautiful? That is a fantastic question. Thank you. I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> You've done this before. <laughs> so for this route, I almost feel like it's equal. Mm. Equal, hard, and beautiful. There are, like with the buffalo going through there, and there are a couple of other rivers along the way, but the views are stunning. Um and it's like just when things are getting hard and stuff, it's like, oh, turn around and there's a gorgeous view. So I think it was pretty equal. I would say something like, say the American Trail Race, it's more beautiful than hard. Mm. Oh, wow. Utah Mixed Epic, I might call more hard than beautiful, even though there's a lot of beauty on the way. <laughs> that's, so, that's saying a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's probably pretty beautiful. Oh, it, gorgeous. Yeah. Especially since he does it like it, Mixed Epic, he's taking you through a mix of different landscapes and stuff. Super, super stunning. But at the same time, you're like, how can yeah. I enjoy this when I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> killing myself on this bike with no water <laughs> oh, and no rough. food in sight? Good. Even, yeah. So even an even trade-off. So that yeah. means that the the difficulty is equally worth the beauty that yeah. you are experiencing. And yep. so that's a nice equilibrium. Andrew, some might say you've created the perfect route. That sounds yeah. pretty ideal. Yep. Okay. That's a good... I, I have to say most people... Um, I think we highlight, or most people, I should rephrase that. I think the this, the difficulty gets highlighted a lot. Um, but yeah, it's it's cool to see the the beauty. I yep. think talked about as well. And um, Eric on the last episode, he he said, I, I it was a similar question. I guess I asked it in a different way, but he said it was a uh, like a ten on the difficulty scale maybe a 10 and a half, but if you factor in the beauty, it's a six. Oh, wow. So he factored in like a four beauty score. You factored yeah. in like a five. So pretty, yeah, pretty stunningly nice. beautiful. <laughs> There's one other thing I want to talk about before we uh, probably get back on the road. You're going west and I'm going east. Yep. So, um, But I think that this is interesting because I think it speaks to who you are as a person. Tell me about this sailing trip that you would like to do. Oh, yeah. So before I started van living, I was actually looking at sailboat living. 
And I'd started looking at boats and stuff and the pandemic hit and we, you know, it was early enough where we didn't know what the, what the heck the virus was and I didn't want to be jet setting coast to coast to look at boats. So I ended up settling on a terrestrial form of travel instead. <laughs> but yeah, I'd still like to buy a sailboat and live aboard full time and do some traveling. So I'm looking at probably four to five years out because I'll take all the courses and get the boat and then have to do a lot of practice, you know, locally. But eventually I would like to do an Atlantic crossing and then s stick myself over in Europe and then spend a few years over there just, you know, paddling the fjords, biking the routes, doing some of the races over there, hiking, just seeing all the food and culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds amazing. I'm pretty excited. Descri okay, so I know this, but the listening audience doesn't know this. Um, I asked you earlier, what is your level of experience with sailing <laughs> on a zero to 10? I said either zero or maybe 0.5 or one. Yeah. I've been on sailboats. I've never gotten seasick on any boat excursion I've been on, but I've never been the one doing the sailing. So I'm starting from scratch. I'll take all the American Sailing Association courses. And then I think as a liveaboard, I think a person is required to have a captain's license, or at least since I plan on doing crossings, like full-blown, you know, ocean crossings, I need to have a captain's license. So by the time I actually take off and do stuff, I'll be well-seasoned as far as no. how to handle the boat. And I never, oh God, I just about inadvertently lied. I was going to say I never put myself in a situation where I... Um, I'm not capable of getting myself out of it, but my <laughs> God, I started bike pack racing with the Tour Divide and I yeah. didn't even know how to, I don't know, change a chain, <laughs> fix a broken chain. But I'll know enough to, you know, be safe. And of course, I'll have other people with me when I cross, whether that's, say, a significant other or people I'm giving a free ride to, basically. Like, if I'm ingrained in the community and I can find people that are good sailors who want to cross the Atlantic, like that's your free passage. You oh. help me pilot this boat. Oh. Because yeah, you need to sleep and stuff. Okay. So. Well, I was, that's what I was wondering. So I just recently, there's a, a movie that was made about the girl who uh, sailed around the world at like the age of 15 or. Oh, wow. I'll you know have this to girl? check that out. No. You haven't heard of her? No. Oh my gosh. It made huge news. That's uh, awesome. She's this, I wish I could remember her name, but she, like, I think from the age of eight or seven, something like that, she started racing boats and from a very young age, always wanted to sail around the world solo. And so I think around the age of 14 or 15, she was getting ready to embark on her journey and, like, she wrecked her boat on a test run and the government, it was a really interesting thing because they were, the government... I'm trying it was it was in a European country. Uh, they were trying to determine if she was allowed to do this. Whose right is it to say if this young girl can go solo on this trip by herself? Is that the parents' authority mm -hmm. to say that? Does the government need to step in and prevent this from happening? It made national news media like this was um, it, it, you know, in America, I don't think it was so so impactful, but I heard about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, event, but eventually she like goes on this trip by herself. I think she went out at 15 is what it was when she went out. Wow. Um, and completely solo. And so I didn't, I didn't know like what your approach was going to be, like what kind of boat you're going to be on, how long you're going to be out there. It sounds, I guess, so I guess you're going to have a crew, but. Yeah, I would definitely not be able to do something like that myself. I'm curious as to what she did as far as sleep and stuff goes. Like, was she 
um, getting to say different islands and stuff and sleeping. But then there no, there are going to be areas where it's like there's no land in sight for days. There was one scene in the movie where she was sleeping, and you're supposed to buckle yourself in in case oh the storm God. comes in, and she didn't, and it was like sloshing all around the the what is it called the hull of the boat. Um, but yeah, like she was just sleeping on the boat, like in the middle of the ocean. That's incredible. Yeah. That's courage right there, especially on probably the size of boat she had if she was, it was manning small. it by herself. It was small. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So what size will your will your boat be? Well, I want it to be small enough that should I need to handle it myself, I can. Like say I'm sailing with someone and that person like gets sick and goes down. Okay. I need to be able to handle it myself. So I don't I don't know how big I can get. I don't know if that would be like a forty one footer would be too big or if it would have to be in the thirties. I haven't investigated that much yet. Yeah. But and I think I would like a catamaran because that has the the flat bottom because there are some places I want to travel to where you can't get in with a monohull boat. It's uh. that's too shallow, so you need to have a cat to like scoot on in there and explore. Yeah. Man, this sounds so cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. Uh, but honestly, like super scary. Um so what about like storms in the middle of the ocean? You're on this little tiny little boat with big ass waves. And yeah, I'm, that'll be terrifying, huh? Uh-huh. Is that going to happen? It's like, okay, <laughs> well, and I don't even there, know like how common that is. Like, is that like... There are definitely systems or? people use to track upcoming storms and stuff. So you can see the prediction of like the weather that's coming in or like say there's a cyclone or something and you're going to be on the outskirts of it. Like you can look at this radar or whatever. And it, it shows you like whether or not basically you should even plan to do this passage okay. at this time. And okay. then there's also just like known trends. So there are certain times of year that you can make a passage, say from, you know, one place to New Zealand or something, but that's like the one time of year you're going to want to do it. Okay. So yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be a lot of learning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I realize Lots you don't research. have all the answers yet. Oh, You're at a 0. 0.5 to 1. <laughs> 0. 0.5 but, to 1. But you know Let's enough point, to know 0. that... 0.25. <laughs> 0.25. I'm not a zero. That's what matters. <laughs> you know more than I do. It sounds uh, It sounds absolutely epic. Yeah, it'll be uh, fun. It sounds like a true, true, true adventure. And talk about like being in... Like you, there's no option, right? Yeah. Like you're either getting a life flighted out of there or you're making it to where you're going. Yeah, I'm gonna have to have a good life raft. <laughs> That's crazy. You're a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say crazy, I say adventurous. I like, yeah, I do too, I do too. All right, last question. Sure. Uh, you're on this sailing trip and do you have room for a bike? Do you take a bike on oh, this? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'd like to have enough room for my mountain bike and my gravel bike. Okay. One of each. Yeah. So you picture going, like you'll get somewhere and then I would assume you'd use the bike as your transportation mm -hmm. in towns. Yep. And, or or just walking. And I would love to get over there. And there are so, so many races. Um, Burton DeCane runs the across the three and across the five. I met him at the French Divide a few years back and his routes appeal to me. So like across the three, he goes across three countries and five goes across five. And the Highland Trail looks awesome. Um, the British Divide, put on by Kevin Francis, and I think he has one other route. There are so many things I want to do over there. So yeah. I think it'd be great to like, kind of like how I have everything I own in the van, yep. I'll have everything in the boat, and I can just get over there and travel, take my bike and travel to whatever race or route that, what's the um, hike that people do? It's like the El Camino I think Here? it's in, and no, and I think it's in Spain, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, they we made, have an El they made a movie <laughs> about it. It was Douglas Murray. Um, I don't know that one. 
right? <laughs> if, if that's the right name. Um, Emilio Estevez's dad. I or no, know. Sheen. Martin Sheen. So Martin Sheen, I think, was like the, the guy. And it details the story of how his son was going to hike this famous route. And I think that it terminates at like a chapel or a church of some type. And but his son got uh he died in a in a wash. He camped in a wash and got, you know, drowned his first day or so out there. And so then Sheen's character goes and does the route, you know, and it kind of like chronicles the people he meets along the way and stuff. But I think that would be a really cool route to hike. I don't I don't think you can bike it. But okay. either way, I'd like to hike it. So there's yeah, there's a lot of stuff over there I just like to experience and I freaking love food and drink, so <laughs> I want to go over there and eat and drink everything they have to offer. You're doing it the right way. I like it. Yeah. I um, just got to stay remote, remote with work, and I can experience it all. Yeah. No, I love the lifestyle that you've built for yourself and the freedom and the sense of adventure. And, Thank you. You know, the, and, and I like, um, I think also like you're like, oh, this is a five-year goal you know, that's, that's what it takes. Like your van, I know it took a while to build and like, you have to like, okay, this is what I want to do. I got to take the classes. I got to save money by a boat. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot that goes into it, but if you're intentional about it, you can carve out a pretty nice little life for yourself if yeah. you got the resources. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I think this is probably the last question. Take me with you. <laughs> hey, I always tell people anytime you want to caravan with me or when I have the boat, there will be room the for boat, visitors. Yeah. Yep. People yeah. can glom on and come on an adventure. Totally open for it. I it's think the, the one thing that I've missed with a lot of my travels is um, people. Like I like to share adventures with other people. And right now I travel yeah. solo. So I do visit a lot of folks. Like this has been really cool, like camping out with you um, for a day. But yeah, it would be really nice to share those experiences more with yeah. people. So I'm always open to people joining me in whatever capacity they can. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay. You're welcome. Thanks I, so much for having me. I've enjoyed meeting you. You are uh, you're a lot of you're super cool. I like you're I've I've enjoyed getting to meet you and you have a lifestyle that I, I think is really cool. Thank uh, you. And I admire and I'm only jealous of, but I've got kids. Uh, which are way better than your stupid vans. <laughs> That's what I tell myself when I'm crying my sleep to sleep at night. <laughs> no, it's been it's been great meeting you. I appreciate Thanks. you uh, coming out here, and um, yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a blast. It's been great getting to know you too. So I appreciate you doing the on location hell podcast. Yeah. yeah, and it's turning out to be a hell of a day. Look at this. Mm -hmm. I think I might go check out that archaeological site down the road here. It would be weird if you didn't as an archaeologist. Yep. I'm going to go I'd check it shamed, out with you. I'd be shamed, shamed in the country. Bye. Awesome. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that one. I sure did, as I hope you can tell. And uh, I am getting ready to leave for Costa Rica. I'm uh, visiting a place called School of the World. Um, we're actually going to be doing a little bit of advertising and promoting for them. And uh, we're going to go out there um, leaving this Sunday. So leaving pretty soon. And I'm traveling internationally with a bike for the first time in my life. Going to be doing a podcast and kind of just taking y'all along for the journey. I don't know exactly how this is going to unfold, but like in my own personal life, I'm interested in traveling abroad with my bike. Uh, this fall, I'm hoping to go on a tour of Italy, you know, so I'm thinking bigger 
and I'm experiencing international bike travel for the first time. And obviously I want to take you guys along for the ride. So exactly how that unfolds and um, how we, you know, process all that is yet to be seen, but uh, going to go to Costa Rica, going to take my bike, going to hit some waves and going to have a good time. And I'm going to tell y'all all about it. That's for sure. All right, everybody. Well, again, listen, I'm flying solo over here. Bikes for death full time. So if you want to support this work, this is a great time. We've never needed your help more than now. So if you'd like to support these episodes, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And of course, another great way to support this podcast is through ratings. You can give us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify, which help greatly to get us out there. You can share us on social media. You can tell your friends and everything you do to help is appreciated and it helps us keep bringing you these episodes. All right, everybody, that's it. It is always a pleasure to be here. Until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination? Merely folklore. Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes for death. Bikes for death.